Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by my co-host Andrew Bartram and our guest Alan Brock. Hello Andrew. Hello Simon. And hello Alan. Hey Simon. Right, well first of all I just want to say thank you to Sandea Lynch uh, for being our guest in episode 14 and I think we need to make it quite clear that this episode is going to be slightly different from the episodes we've done before because we're actually recording this about two hours after Sandea's episode has gone out um, so the, the, it's, it's going to be a bit like time travel uh, this this week um, so there won't be we won't be doing any emails or updating things on coffee donations and, and things like that because well <laughs> unless somebody's actually just about finished the show and gets an email to us while we're still recording we won't be able to keep up with that and get and get it out there so uh hope i hope that makes sense nope not at all <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so um, let's start with, because we're not going to start with what we've actually been doing since the last show, because that pretty much means what we've been doing in the last three Two days. days. Yeah. You can talk about the weather, Simon, I think. We, we could talk about the weather. Uh, actually, the weather's been quite nice here, actually. It has. Yeah. We've, we've had... We're enjoying an Indian summer. Are you familiar with that term, uh, Alan? Um, hot later in the summer, correct? Yeah, I don't, when I say Indian, I don't mean like people with feathers in their head, you know, <laughs> leaping around. I, I, in fact, I don't really know why it's called an Indian summer. No, but I think it's more to do with the Indian subcontinent, I guess, but I've no idea. If anyone, anyone out there knows why we call it an Indian summer, please write in to Simon and tell him. I must, I must say, I, I was... I was quite surprised that Alan actually um, understood that one because I just thought that would be something that would be peculiarly... British, British because of yeah. the you know the, the empire and all all of that kind mm. of stuff so uh yeah. was... well you know he's a colonial chap aren't you Alan you know we you know we we had charge of you once didn't we yeah uh, it was a bit ago um <laughs> so I, I don't have fond memories of that time but uh yeah I, I don't know why I've heard of that but uh I do remember hearing about it somewhere in the past but again don't know the origin of it well, as you, as you've as we've already introduced very very briefly, and you've heard there, we have Alan Brock with us uh, on today's show, and I'm going to hand over to Andrew to give Alan a proper introduction. Hmm. Well, thank you, Simon. Well, Alan, it's really lovely for you to join us. We've been trying to pin you down for a while, and uh, I'm not going to challenge you to a press up competition because I'd clearly lose. And I, I don't know when I first came across you, Alan. It was certainly on YouTube. When did I get into? I started. YouTube's a great place, really. I mean, you can. I, I can. It's very easy to get lost in YouTube. And there's a number of film photographers that I follow, and uh, I think I probably started following you after after Ben, probably. Sorry, but I'm sure I did. Oh, that's the um, way most, most people came to my channel. Yeah, yeah, it's like Ben's Ben's brother or something. I don't know. <laughs> and um, but so I've, I've I've gone back over the years and and watched different uh, videos. I can't say I've watched everything, and I'm really interested in your flying activities. And I enjoyed watching you hiking through canyons and getting stuck in in um, uh, quicksand and so on and so forth. And I enjoyed you. Um, it's quite interesting how your body shape changing from being like a nine stone weakling to some big butch bodybuilder. 
I, well, I was going to ask earlier, yeah, I wonder what my weight converts to in stones, because I have no idea about that either. Oh, no. You, well, you don't. Well, you, you just talk about your weights in pounds, don't you, in, in America? Yes, yeah. Pound, that's old money as well, isn't it? Pounds and stones. Are the, <laughs> yeah, how many well, pounds are, in a stone? Are, um, are, yeah, that's the thing, though, when you talk about the, the old measurements, that there are some measurements that yeah you know, we might talk about okay but, yeah we talk in miles over here in the UK and uh, in and the US and in America uh, yeah. which 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 is a good thing. Um, you guys talk miles in the yeah, UK. Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> we we mix and match. You see, whereas in liquid volumes we don't talk about stupid things like quarts and stuff like that. We, we're into liters and milliliters and we, but we that makes much more sense. That, we still have pints of beer, <laughs> but, but in weight weight we're still. We're still used to standing on the bathroom scales and measuring ourselves in stones, and there are fourteen or sixteen. What is it, Simon? Quickly, I think, I think it's four, fourteen. Fourteen well, pounds they, in a stone. Well, I've, I've, got, I've now got a, a, a calculator up, so I, I'm not going to be able to uh, give, give something. <laughs> this is a great introduction, isn't it? <laughs> I, I pulled it up as well. I'm fifteen point three stone. Okay. Oh, oh, right. Okay, so that so. You've oh, you've, you've already done the work then. And do you do you measure your height in? Feet or feet and inches. I'm yeah, so do we. Four. Yeah, so that's pretty lean, isn't it? You know, that the, I, I bet you've not got too much body fat there. That's all I can say. Six foot four, fifteen stone. You'd make a good rugby player. <laughs> oh, I would get smashed in rugby. <laughs> <laughs> well, just just on this one though, because I was just just saying that thing. Even though yeah, we're we're quite almost ambidextrous with uh, with these these measurements. Some of the measurements that you are, are different again, though, aren't they? Because we all talk about pints, but a pint in the UK is different from a pint in America, and I think the same goes with uh, gallons as well. I think a gallon's different. I, I think so. Yeah, I think it's a US is gallon, it, as we would call it. In the UK, it. is it eight pints to a gallon? Is that right, oh, Simon? I never, I never got that far, to be honest. Um, it's. Um, it would be eight pints to a gallon in the U.S. There you go. Yeah, but the two pint, pints to a quart, four quarts to a gallon. I, I oh, you see, you lose me at quarts and stuff. Yeah, but I think I'm just saying though that we we might be talking in the same way, but I think our measurements are different though. So uh, oh. I think your U.S. pint is here we go. U.S. versus imperial pint. Um, <laughs> Sunday sixteen podcast did a whole welcome to the large format photography podcast, everybody. Yeah. Uh, this really took a different direction than I was anticipating. <laughs> uh, okay, calculate imperial pints. Uh, oh, that's what? So one U.S. pint. Uh, calculates. Now we do kind of go back and forth as well. Um, in college, I majored in biology and minored in chemistry. In chemistry labs, that was all metric because it, it just makes more sense measuring volumes, liquids, and stuff. It well, does, so, doesn't it? Well, I can I can now inform you that one US pint is 0.832 of a imperial pint. So our so, imperial pints are bigger. So a pint of beer over there gets you more. Exactly. That's a deal. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's one of those things. It's a really odd thing, isn't it? Because uh, you know, like I say, in in the UK, certainly if you're if somebody of a certain age as uh, Andrew and I are. Um, we quite happily flip between the imperial and, and, and metric, but I guess the the, the younger generation um, are more well, and more wedded with the uh, the metric mm, system. Mm, yeah, I mean, I do get confused with the Fahrenheit. I know oh. roughly that twenty degrees C is sixty eight, sixty nine Fahrenheit, something like that. But I can't get my head really around 
round it other than that. And I measure atmos- atmospheric pressure in millibars. How do you measure atmospheric pressure? Do you know? I completely drew a blank on yeah. pressure. Oh, okay. You don't measure them in kilopascals of... or uh, inches, well, of, inches of mercury. I bet you use yes, inches, yes, of, mer- yes. inches of mercury. I cannot believe I blanked on that because HG, that's part HG. of every flight we do is you have to input yeah. that into your plane. Of course you would do. Is it and in inches of mercury or millibars? So inches of mercury is what I'm most familiar with because, like I said, we deal with that in uh, in airplanes. You, so there's about 29 inches of mercury in an, in one atmosphere or 1,014 millibars. Let's see, 29.92, I think, go. is Pretty standard. Um, Welcome to the Large Format Photography <laughs> Podcast, everybody. Just <laughs> the variety of knowledge you'll get from the show. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alan. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Could I try and drag Simon into line because he's been <laughs> keen on taking us into really strange areas? <laughs> so, yeah. So we. So I came across you on YouTube, and uh, uh, and then as I watched uh, Ben Horn's videos, I saw that he was referring to press up competitions with you. Then I saw you guys met up, and there seems to be a whole bunch of you guys who seem to meet up regularly in zion and places like that so we'll talk about all that good stuff but why don't you do that thing that we always ask our guests to do and just tell us how you how you got into film photography and how you managed to eventually gravitate to the large stuff um sure so i mean if you want to go way back i guess it would have to be um when i was young my mom always had a camera in her hand just to document family stuff but i was always kind of um had exposure to cameras from the beginning. And then probably about 10 years ago, um, my wife, Jennifer wanted a nice camera for Christmas. And so I I knew nothing about cameras, um, researched it. We got a Canon digital camera and I don't know exactly what got me into it, but I, I just decided, you know, I really want to use, learn how to use this camera. It was a DSLR. And so I just sat there and uh, kind of taught myself uh, manual exposure. Uh, we actually did wedding photography for years, um, but I, I did always, I've always been kind of an outdoor uh, outdoor person. So I, uh, I knew I wanted to shoot landscapes. And so I, I kind of dabbled in that digitally and just really wasn't happy with the results I was getting. It was all my fault as well. I was trying to overprocess it and just wasn't being patient. So also about that time, we have a, uh, you guys probably have it too, Popular Photography Magazine. It's mm-hmm. it's now gone, but um, there was, was... I don't know if it was the same in America because I've. it was a big title in the States, wasn't it? Popular yeah, it, it was. And then... Going back into the 70s or perhaps earlier. Yeah, it had been a w- around for a while, and then, as with most print magazines, just couldn't support itself anymore. But th- there was an article in that um, f- by, or it was a, about a photographer named Rodney Lowe Jr. And he had this image in there that just really stood out as a landscape image. Um, and like most photographers, I didn't pay any attention to the skill. I went straight to what camera was he using? <laughs> and because uh, that had to take the picture, right? Um, <laughs> so I found out he was using a large format, had no clue what that was. A new medium format cameras existed. So um, 
Googled it and, you know, all these pictures of old Tommy cameras popped up and uh, just, I, I don't know, it, it started to appeal to me as I, as I researched more about it, kind of the slow, methodical um, pace to it. Uh, so I decided that I wanted to try I hadn't shot a bit of film, no roll film, no 120, 35, nothing. But I decided I wanted to jump straight to large format. Do you not have film cameras as a kid and, you know, dad, mom? Yeah, so they did, but I never um, I, I never shot anything. Uh, my mom always was, you know, documenting family stuff. So I was always around film, but didn't know how to expose it, things like that. So I, I just I jumped in straight to straight to large format. Um bought the camera and as i was saying we had we were wedding photographers so i knew my way around a camera but uh when the when that box came in that shenhao was was that the shenhao was it the mm -hmm. first one you had that was my first one it was the camera Mm -hmm. and a 100 because they're still making those aren't they i think it was not it was used but it was in great shape as far as i know shenhao still being made as well yeah but it was used with a 180 millimeter lens that I still have and use. I realized that I knew nothing about how to make that camera work. So got on YouTube, um, searched around, and that's when I first came across Ben's videos and uh, you know, kind of learned from him. And then I, I'm guessing that's where if people, if there's anyone out there who has heard of me, it's probably from YouTube. Um but, uh, you know, just really was drawn to Ben's style of videos and uh, learned a lot from the way he shot large format. And, uh, yeah, just kind of kind of grew from there, I guess. And um, you, you did you get immediately drawn to the same sort of areas that he goes to? Because, you know, you, there is a there's a clear there's a clear love of the same sort of landscape, isn't there? I mean, where, whereabouts are you? I mean, and how far away? Ben seems to get in a car and, yes. and seems to think nothing of driving like so, 15 or 15 hours. You just fly there and can't be doing with all that four-wheel stuff. Yeah, that's. I'm, I'm not going to travel around like that. <laughs> that's for peasants. <laughs> um, so I, I'm actually in the eastern U.S. Um, Zion is about 1,400 Fourteen to fifteen hundred miles away from Ooh. me. Ben is in, um, San Diego. in California. He's yeah. in San Diego. Um, it's a bit closer, and, and maybe. It, it is closer. I, I don't know how long it takes him to yeah, to get because he's got Joshua but, Tree as well. That's all in that area, isn't it? North of San Diego, Joshua Trees. Yes. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's relatively close to them, um, but uh, it, I was actually watching his videos. You know, trying to learn. Um, how to use a large format camera. And he, um, in, in the beginning of his videos, he did a lot of stuff in the narrows. And I hadn't, at that point in, in my life, I had never seen anything like that. A river right next to a canyon wall that went up 2,000 feet. So, uh, so I'm f- for, for folks not, who aren't familiar with Ben Horn's videos or indeed yours, uh, the narrows are uh, are they like a what we would call a slot canyon or a canyon off to the side of a main area? Is that is that what the narrows are? So the narrows are considered a um, 
as Slot Canyon. It, it's not really a canyon that branches off of anything. Um, okay. So Zion itself, you you enter at the you're in the base of the canyon, and as you go upriver, it kind of the the walls kind of close in and continuously close in for a period of about seven miles until eventually there's no more flat land to walk on. It's just the river. And then on either side of the river are vertical Canyon walls that go up uh, in some cases, several thousand feet. Um, And the most narrow it gets was probably 10 or 15 feet across um, Mm -hmm. the river and then just straight vertical Canyon walls where I live. We have more rolling Hills and so I was completely unfamiliar with that. And just, I mean, the second I saw it, I, I knew I had to visit there. Yeah. And, and then, but it, it's a massive area. And I think I see, is there an area where the tourists kind of congregate and not go too far? And then are there different ways in, you know, like, so I'm familiar with Yosemite and I know you can enter that from about three or four different areas, depending on the time of the year. But how is it with Zion? Is there an, is there an area which is like where the tourists are and then other areas you can enter? What, what's, what's the deal? So with Zion, um, the, the main attraction where most people go is, is the main canyon there. Mm-hmm. And it's about a seven-mile stretch of canyon. And there are, a, um, there are buses that stop. I want to say there are seven, seven points that the, the buses, shuttle buses will take you in and out of. And the last stop, the most, the furthest up river you can go is the entrance to the Narrows. So the bus drops you off there. And then you have a one mile paved sidewalk uh, that will lead you as far back as you can. Most people will walk that sidewalk. Um, once you get to the end of the sidewalk, and uh, that's officially when the narrow starts. That's when it's the river extends wall to wall. Mm. Um, and you're hiking in what's really cold water at that time. So you can go as far back as uh, I think four and a half miles. You can go upriver. Most people don't go that far. But it has it has become really crowded lately. Yeah, I was I think I mentioned this. To Ben, I was reading. There's a couple of books published by Bruce Barnbaum. I don't know if you're familiar with Bruce. I've heard of him. He's an American uh, photography professor, a uh, very good educator. He's got some stuff on YouTube that you can find, and he's published a, a, a couple of books on uh, sort of visualization, developing your style, and mainly large format. But he actually. Uh, I think he's accept, it's accepted that he was probably the first photographer to go and make photographs in Antelope Canyon. I can't remember where that is, but it's one wow. of the, um, it's, it's you know, with all those swirly rocks and beautiful abstract images. And, and now he, he says, uh, I mean, the books, the books were sort of five or ten years old, and he said, as I'm writing this now, he said he, he doesn't go anymore because whereas he was just the only person there in the early 70s, now they're bussing people in, you know, on uh, whole groups of Japanese tourists to do. So it's lost its attraction. But I don't know where Antelope Canyon is and whether that's, I don't know whether that's in Zion or somewhere else. That's just kind of to the southeast of Zion. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons Antelope has just become 
grossly overcrowded is it's relatively easy to access. Like uh, you said, yeah. you that you can bus people right to the entrance. And then I've not been, but from what I understand, it's not it's not really a hike. It's just a you take steps down into the canyon, and it's a stroll up the canyon. It's it's not steep and not difficult. So, mm. so I I watched probably I don't know how long ago it was, maybe a year ago when. You um, so there's this Ben Horn character, right? Let's throw him under <laughs> the bus because he's not listening. Um, he came on the show just to sell his box sets, which I'm sure you wouldn't want to do. Oh, um, I would but... never. AlanRockImages.com/store. <laughs> I would never, never promote that. No, of course not. Um, so he came on just to sell his box sets, and of course, he all he does is just um, get off the bus and set his camera up and pick up a few diapers and uh, tin cans and pretends that he's uh, he's been out in the wilderness for days but you actually did it didn't you you wandered off with uh, justin larry i think it was and did you, you kind of went proper wild man didn't you with i think an intrepid camera uh yeah so, so yeah tell, tell, uh, tell us about sorry tell us about that trip tell us about the photographic challenges what you're after whether it lived up to your expectations whether it was worth lagging a large format <laughs> camera with you, what film you used, where you slept, whether you got eaten by mountain lions, and did you pick up any turds that were left by tourists? <laughs> um, yeah, so this this will take a bit because that that's um, or you all folk can the, just go and watch the YouTube videos, but you know, a bit humorous and tell us. <laughs> yeah. So with that. Um, yeah, if you know, I would never self promote, but that's a series oh, of videos on. I'm extremely proud of. So, if anyone does want to go, just YouTube Alan Brock Images, and that's my 2017 trip to Zion. But uh, it, as we were talking about earlier, I, I kind of gravitate toward these more obscure areas of hobbies. When I was first researching Zion uh, for my first trip out there, I got all the hiking guides and stuff, and I found this hike that wasn't in Zion, but it was this big adventurous trip that was supposed to have uh, scenery scenery equal to Zion, which obviously appealed to me. Um, so it was kind of in the back of my mind there. And then as I got more and more into large formats and particularly the backpacking with large format gear, which we can talk about all that's related to that mm. a little bit later. But that, that trip came back to me and I was like, is that going to be possible? And as I started dialing in my kit, uh, it was just going to be too much weight. There was no way I could, I could carry it. So again, it kind of went out of my mind. Um, somewhere along the line. Shen, Shen Hao then, did you? Is that what you were thinking of? Yes. Yeah. And, and that's roughly a six pound camera, mm-hmm. which, uh, doesn't sound like a, a lot, but when you add everything else, it, it yeah. becomes an issue. Um, somewhere along that line, I uh, heard of the Intrepid Kickstarter, which I thought was very neat uh, that, that people were developing large format cameras. But um, do you guys remember that Kickstarter at all the first time? Yeah, I, I backed it and got the first Model 1. Do you um, remember the very one of the very first pictures prototypes they uh that they had where the front standard supports were actually made out of the wood do you remember that picture uh yeah yep 
So I thought that was the ugliest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> I was like, I cannot buy a camera that has wooden supports for the standard. Mm. So that's neither here nor there, but that's just kind of, that's what legitimately kept me from buying that camera to begin with. But um, over the years I got connected with Justin Lowry and um, I actually at that point held the version two, I believe it was of the camera or maybe it was the version one that he had. And I was just absolutely blown away by how lightweight it was. They had improved the looks of uh, of the camera immensely, and so I think the one you were referring to was probably when, when they first started sharing images. It was like the prototype, prototype or the concept models. But I can't remember now. I had the model one. I can't actually remember what the front stand. I don't think it was wood. I'm sure that was just the concept model. It, it was, and then yeah. the version one, they initially, or they eventually replaced those wooden supports with metal ones. It's yeah. actually a very slick-looking camera, I thought, but I could not believe how lightweight it was. And so, once I picked up that camera uh, uh, that started the wheels turning again mm-hmm. for that trip, and so Justin, he, he and I share a lot of the same uh, interests and in, with regard to outdoors and backpacking and stuff. And so I kind of roped him into the trip. Um, and then talking about Ben, he at, uh, when I initially asked him if he wanted to join, he said, you know, I just don't think the trip's feasible with eight by 10. And so I was like, well, that, that's fine. Uh, I was really hoping he would go um, simply because at that point I had never done any, canyon backpacking i had no clue what to expect um so later on he decided that he maybe would join the trip and then ended up uh deciding not to go which honestly kind of freaked me out a little bit because i was thinking you know here's this guy who's literally the best in the world at this particular type of photography and if he's not going what are we getting ourselves into um but uh, the way we we started it, we had to take a shuttle bus early in the morning to the trailhead or a, a shuttle vehicle. And it was low 30 degrees when we started, so right around freezing, right around zero mm-hmm. uh, centigrade. And we got – we parked uh, to where the shuttle could go no further because the trail was getting too rough. And within – the first tenth of a mile, there was a river crossing that we had to do in literally freezing weather. So it was that that got us right into the reality of it. But have you got the what have you got on your feet? Because I'm sure I've watched Ben do this, and he's got some like condoms he puts over his shoes or something, or rubber f- shoes or something. I don't know what he does. He does something where he keeps dry, doesn't he? Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's neoprene socks <laughs> and. and uh, <laughs> dry pants so the, the dry pants have a rubber rubber gasket at your ankles so Sounds they very don't kinky is it, is it where you do this the rubber um, that you would you would not want to try anything <laughs> kinky in dry pants they're a hassle it, it would not end well um so basically from the ankle to your waist you're completely sealed off the mm-hmm. neoprene socks you wear are not waterproof so your feet are cold and wet the whole time. Mm. The neoprene just basically keeps a thin layer of water pressed against your uh, skin. So your you're body taking your hiking boots off, presumably at this point, aren't you? Just uh, so actually, I went with hiking boots over the neoprene socks. Justin just hiked in socks literally that whole trip. Hey. He just hiked in socks to to save weight. Oh, okay. Um, but 
you're hiking in in and out of the water. It's a very uh, the the river is just back and forth. So you're constantly in and out of it. And uh, the quicksand that you mentioned was I I, I really did I, I knew about that, but was not prepared for what it was. It, it's like if you can imagine walking in Jello, you can take a a step and just sink straight through it, and there's no there's no warning that it's coming up. So I I legitimately got stuck in it. Um, I could have got out on my own, but it would have involved swimming, um, which you don't want to do with. So when you say you got gear so on did your back, you get, uh, did you get like up to your neck and you're about to disappear under, or did so you, were you rescued by Justin uh, <laughs> you know, when you were just like ankle deep? It was, it was a, uh, a last second dramatic rescue. Uh, <laughs> so quicksand is actually not like what you see on TVs and the movies. Um, it, it's basically just water saturated sand. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say I got stuck in it, I'm, I'm hiking in the river and I step in. Uh, I'm hiking along in about ankle deep water and I step in all of a sudden take a big step into it immediately goes to mid thigh deep Hmm. and you know, I'm all in sand and stuff. I can't go back to, I can't go back up river because the current of the river is pushing against me too hard. So that's what I mean by saying I was stuck. I had hiking poles. And so I was kind of testing the water that was in front of me and it was much deeper Uh, So I didn't want to take any steps further down river because all my gear would have got wet. So thankfully, Justin was there. Um, He just stuck out his trekking pole and I pulled out and uh, you you could hear like the suction breaking of where I was in the sand there. By yourself, would that have been a, would would that have been a a life threatening moment or? That's a good question because I've often thought what I would have done if I was by myself. Um, not life-threatening at all. It, it wasn't. It wasn't even a dangerous situation. It was just I don't want to keep going and get all my gear wet. Okay. Um, so I was relatively close to the bank of the river. I think what I would have done by myself is offload my pack and kind of thrown it to the bank of the river and then just taking my chances walking downstream, mm-hmm. pulling out and, and walking downstream. So it was it was never life threatening. I could have always okay. got out of it by myself, but um was definitely well, thankful that, that, that I could have been a good story, doesn't it? Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's not <laughs> Yeah, I mean I guess I could have played it up. But uh <laughs> it was had you taken any pictures? Had, had you taken any photographs at this time or you just uh, Oh no that yeah. was that was the first day in the, like the first few hours but so, uh, we were aware of a few locations down Canyon. There's not, there wasn't much about this area online and in guidebooks, but I searched for everything I, I could find on it. And uh, there were a few locations that we knew could potentially have good, good phot- photographic subjects. And so, I kind of marked those on my GPS and as luck would have it, the entrance to those side canyons was next to very good campsites or obviously not designated was, campsites, but one it, early on where I think you really fell in love with, I forget. And you did, did you stay there? We, we stayed there two stayed nights. There. Yeah. And I got the impression you didn't really want to leave. Is that, is that right? Is that yes. Right? That, that was, 
that's probably the most enjoyable photograph experience I've ever had. It was just the weather. It did get a bit cold at night, but it was just, I mean, th- those typical fall days. I, I don't know kind of what you guys get over there, but we have these days in the fall where the weather is just absolutely perfect. A little chill in the morning, mm. and then it's just it's a, it's a bit like that. Weather. It's a bit like that now, isn't it, Simon? Are you with us? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm oh, we have to there. check. Sometimes he's got his, he's either asleep or his, his mic his mic <laughs> well, muted. We'll listen for the snoring. But the, the <laughs> conditions were just perfect. Uh, we, we were exploring this true slot canyon. We talked about the Narrows earlier, but yeah. this was a canyon in some places where you could extend both arms and touch either side of uh, e- either wall of the canyon. And the light was just, uh, I don't want to sound too cheesy, but it was just magical. I mean, bouncing off the walls. And uh, I know Ben is is known for, and he talks a lot about reflected lights, uh, but it really is just the most pleasing light to photograph you can imagine. And, and so we had this, Justin and I had this whole canyon just to, to, play in photographically for two straight days and we and was were just kind of, of so was it full of i know ben bangs on and on about reflected light so that's basically mm-hmm. a certain time of the day when the light is reflecting off a big surface which is probably a wall um, um you know mountainside or a rock side and then it's just bouncing the light into a scene but you're describing a canyon you know where you can put your arms out to the side i mean is that were you just lucky to get the light or did you hang around and see how the light changed or go, so, with, what you, go with what you got or how did yeah that so work? the first day you no know, we went there i would say we got to our, our campsite maybe noon of the first day mm-hmm. and uh noon one o'clock so we set up camp because we didn't want to have to be doing that in the dark and then kind of rearranged our packs into photography mode and we went exploring this canyon and i would say the area or the the distance that we went up and down the canyon was probably one mile long and so basically the best way to scout that because you know the sun's obviously changing positions throughout the day you just walk back and forth across throughout that canyon and when you get good light, you set up quickly and photograph it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you go back and watch those videos, you, you'll actually see that I came across a pretty good glow, a pretty good area of reflected light. As I was setting up my camera, it was fading because the sun was shifting. And so, just get your iPhone out then. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, just increase the saturation when you when you scan the film. But I, I marked the time on my watch and made sure ah. that the next day to arrive yeah, there yeah. earlier. And th- that's that's a really satisfying part of large format to set up before the light gets there and then watch it, watch a scene transform in front of you. Well, Ben does um, that. Ben does that in the desert and sets his camera up like the night before, doesn't he? And then rushes back to find it's broken or something. <laughs> yeah. Usually it's been, it's been knocked over uh, with the way he, way he shoots. But um, so in the desert, that's, that's especially hit or miss. I mean, you're just for the most part, unless you're kind of going for that blue hour pre sunrise shot, you're, you're basing everything on, well, I hope I have some interesting clouds in the sky um, in slot canyons. 
as long as you uh, hit the timing right and the sky is clear, no clouds blocking the sun, you're pretty much going to be guaranteed to get that light. Uh, so it's so you're looking at a fairly even, glowy light. Uh, but w- what sort of challenge? How were you, how were you were, were you having like the sweat? I've been I'd be having sweats about this because you're exposing probably slide film, and you know we know from talking to Ben it's got very relatively low latitudes. Uh, it, t- tell us about that sort of photography side of it with exposure and film and how you were how you were coping with that sort of lighting conditions. So um, I actually did shoot uh, in, in that particular slot canyon. The dynamic range was huge. So I would say I'd have to go back and add it up, but I think I exposed more negative film, more mm-hmm. Kodak Ektar than Velvia yeah. in that canyon. Um, you would just have because we're dealing with an area that's so narrow, there are some parts of it that the sun never hits. So you've got that darkness and um, you may just around the corner have an area that's in full reflected light. So it's getting quite a bit of the sun. So you can imagine the, the dynamic range that's at play there. In fact, my favorite image from that, uh, that trip has, it's just a narrow sliver of light the right-hand wall is almost completely black. You've got a glow in the background, and then the left wall has a little bit of light on it. That was taken on Ektar, and it was even beyond the range of Ektar, which is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much my, my rule for that is if, if I come across a scene that's beyond five stops, I don't even consider Velvia. I just go straight to Ektar. Well, you could isolate a little part of the scene, couldn't you, I suppose? I, I did, and I actually tried that. Um, and I, I said I was going to just expose for the reflected light glow and let everything else go black. And it was kind of an experiment. And I included it in the video, but it, it's not its not a good image. Uh, but mm-hmm. but that's certainly an option. But there were a few, a few areas of reflected light that uh, Belvia worked well with with that trip or in that particular canyon. And if you can, if there's any way possible to use Velvia in, uh, in Canyon country, it's just magical. Is that 50 Velvia 50? Yes. I, uh, actually only shoot Velvia 50. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, when I was first starting, I put a few sheets of Velvia 100 through the camera. And that's actually a very good, very good film. If the scene is bright, um, it's. I would say it's every bit the equal to Velvia 50 in well-lit scenes. But when you start getting darker shadows, it, it's just, it falls apart. It, it goes magenta and it's, I don't know, to me, it's not a pleasing, not a pleasing color. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So you're wandering up and down, you're camped at this lovely site and you won, you spent two days there. So did you spend two days in that little narrow canyon or did you go... Did you um, photograph elsewhere from that base? So we spent, uh, from that base, it it was two days in the canyon. The the first day, obviously, we had... Oh, yeah, because you went back to because you had noticed when the light was going to be right. Right. You went back on day two. So that that day two, um, that that was... And I kind of referenced this in the video or alluded to it. it. It was just the most fun I've ever had with photography because we were... Um, 
you know, he and I would just kind of crisscross going back and forth up and down that canyon, finding, finding light. And, you know, I'd come across him and he'd be setting up his camera for a glow. And then later on, I'd have my camera set up at a different spot and he'd be hiking through. And it was you just... Find, did you find yourself sort of sneaking glances at each other? Saying, well, <laughs> and then you feel a bit embarrassed that, well, I'm not going to go and show you that I, I'm going to just go and stand somewhere slightly different. So it doesn't look like I'm copying you. <laughs> yeah. So with, with that trip, um, you know, I... I've had a few people do that, a few strangers do that, set up right beside me, and <laughs> it's always a little bit awkward, yeah. but if if it's a friend of mine, someone I know, I'm like, just, you know, put your tripod right next to mine, I don't mind, but we, Justin and I actually, it's interesting, we actually had that conversation before, and we both agreed, you know, we're going to be in some narrow areas, there's going to be probably some limited shots, we're going to set tripods up right beside each other. Uh, but sometimes you, you just still, can't avoid even, it. Even when you're shooting fairly similar scenes, I bet you came up with your results were different. Yeah, that's that was really fascinating. We, we shot the area completely different, even though we were sharing basically this same one mile stretch of Slot Canyon. Um, most of his stuff, he he wasn't doing any YouTube at the time, so all of his stuff was would be either on his website or his Instagram page. But yeah, we, we just we were in the same area, but completely different, completely different uh, photographs we were able to come away with. Mm-hmm. So you had five days. Um, I from memory, and it's a while since I watched him. I thought. You kind of peaked really early with a lovely campsite and such a great time in the area. Did it? Was it as good after that, or did you kind of run out of steam eventually? Or how did how did the next few days go? So it, it was day three that was the really rough one. We packed up our campsite that morning, and Justin had gone uh, really, really lightweight uh, and hadn't quite packed warm enough gear to sleep in so oh, he yeah. had, that was just an excuse to come and snuggle up to you wasn't it i know yeah, I, how these things work you'll have to get him on the show i, I can't confirm or deny that but uh, <laughs> he uh uh he woke up with a migraine and was had just been shivering just a miserable second night for him hmm. and so there were a few points along that trail where we knew we could bail out. It'd be about a seven mile hike, but we knew we could, we could get out if we needed to. So that second day he was, uh, I, I think ready. He was considering calling it quits at that point. Yeah. Um, and I, I really didn't want to quit. I, I was going to, and you don't want to be out there on your own. Do you really? I mean, uh, you can it, see it, the track, but it's unknown, isn't it? You know, there's not too many people have been out where you were. It, it it would have been uh, certainly a bigger risk than I think I was willing to take at the time. Mm. Um, and I just, I really wanted to get to the part of the canyon that was like the Narrows in Zion. And that would have been toward the very end of the hike. So we, we got him warmed up and I kind of, you know, would ask how he was feeling every so often. And he, he decided he was ready to, ready to proceed onward. So we had... I want to say roughly a five to six mile hike to an area that we had scouted for base camp number two. And so 
in letting Justin kind of warm up and get acclimated, we got a later start than I wanted to. So we were missing a good part of the day to photograph. And that was always in the back of my mind. Um, but also, as the day went further, we were getting clouds in, which was killing any good light that we, we might have had that day. And that, that was all predicted. So I, I'd kind of anticipated that. But also, it's been a good day for just covering miles, wouldn't it? When you say, okay, let's, let's get this miles under our belt because the weather's rubbish, you know? In hindsight, we would have made that day strictly a hiking day, mm-hmm. added one more day to our time in the canyon. And, yeah. uh, but we, we, the way we had it planned out our time there, we had to hike and then try to do any photographing as well that day. Um, there, there was a point in the day where I knew I should have eaten and I did not. And so I, my calorie count got really low and I just became physically exhausted. Um, I had my drone with me on that trip because I, I've always wanted to fly drones in Zion, which you can't. And it's a national park and illegal. Well, here we're just out in the wilderness. So at one point in that day, I, I stopped. Justin had peeled off he was photographing something and i took my drone to get some video for the uh for the video or some b-roll for the video i was doing and i knew about where we were and kind of the exit point had a very distinct mountain and so i said i'm gonna fly my drone up out of the canyon and just see how we Hmm. where we are how close we are yeah I got above the canyon rim and could not see it. I just saw more hills and rolling. And I thought, that's when it really hit me that, oh my gosh, we are deep in canyon country. Do you, we have, are a, not. Do you have a cell phone connection at this point if you need help? Uh, the cell phones won't work in that mm-hmm. canyon. Okay. Justin had a uh, GPS where he could, if something went wrong, he could send out a whatever the equivalent of an SOS signal is. And, yeah. and do you tell people you might do all the safety advices, tell your um, guest house person where you're going and how long you're going to be away for. Yeah, absolutely. So there in Zion, um, Ben knew where we were. Um, yeah. Our, our pickup car, we had to drop off a pickup car at the exit point. Okay. We had left a little note on there saying, we're expected back this day. And then of course we uh, told our wives, you know, when you're going to be in contact with us again, because that's, Oh, they wouldn't remember. Yeah. Well at that time, yeah, we'd had, we had the twins at that time. So Jennifer had, uh, she was home with three kids who were, you're leaving me here with these babies while you're going off like on a, with your, to have a little bromance in a, in a canyon <laughs> with some with some cameras. Yeah. It's a really sweet deal that we've got worked out. <laughs> I, I told uh, I told Jennifer after my first year in Zion, I said I don't care what we have to do. If you have to take your own trips every so often and leave me with the kids every year when the when the color peaks in Zion, I'm coming out to Utah for a week. Yeah. And uh, then she visited this past year, and she she understands it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so they know they know where we are okay. and roughly when we'll be back. But that was I let myself get exhausted that day, and, and you've got to one thing you got to remember at that point. I'm coming off a time where I'm have just been stuck in unknown quicksand, so 
every step you take, there's a degree of uncertainty about it, which is not the way you want the hike. And I came across this, this area again of wall to wall water. There, there's no, no land you can step on. You're hiking strictly in the river for goodness. It looked to be about a quarter of a mile. Again, Justin was off. He was photographing something else. And I realized I have to hike this area that could have, you know, could be loaded with quicksand and there's absolutely no way around it. And I just have to go through and do it. And that was, that'll always stick out to me as some of the most stressful hiking I've ever done. Just that quarter mile stretch. But presumably he would have had to catch you up because it was on your route to the next. Right. right. I I was ahead of him at that point. So he would, he would have caught up. Um, I just, I, I guess I was more concerned about, you know, falling and yeah, getting all the film soaked. And so you're getting kind of stressed at this point because you think, well, actually, I'm supposed to be taking photographs, and you know, the, but I've got to walk. Is are you sort of a part of you wants to just take pictures anyway? Because Ben's always going on about, I oh, just once I've got this first picture done, it doesn't matter whether it's rubbish or not. I just feel a lot better. You know, you, yeah, and. Yeah, I feel the same way. Uh, I don't know what it is to that, but I've got to get the first picture out of the way on a trip. Um, fortunately, you know, we had we had done that in the you'd, slot. You'd had a good day, hadn't you? So right. at least if you did nothing else, you knew you'd got those shots in that those first couple of days. The absolutely. Uh, so that part was out of the way, but in in researching this trip, um, like I had said, there were several outs that we had where if if something bad happened we could we there were a few routes out well as you get further down canyon that that disappears so the only if you came across an obstacle you could not get around the only way back would be to hike up river hmm. and well, basically the way you came is that what the you're... way you came in yeah. and at that point I was starting to realize the current was actually really strong. Yeah, because at this point you've got the current pushing you down the right in the direction. And but I, at I'm, some point you've got to walk. Some point you have still got to come back, haven't you? Uh, yes, yeah, so we'll get to that at the end. We okay. we don't. Uh, <laughs> there, there's an exit point that okay. that, uh, that you can aim for. Wasn't involved in oh. going upriver, but I, I'm starting to come to the realization that. I don't think I'm going to have the stamina to hike back up river because mm-hmm. it was so exhausting going down river and that yeah. current was very, very strong. There were two relatively tricky obstacles I knew about that were going to be coming up the next day. And so it was just all, all that weighing on your mind. It just became too much. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was not a fun day. And you have no beer with you, presumably, because it's too heavy, so you can't even drown your sorrows at the end of the day. You're drowning your sorrows in filtered water and <laughs> rehydrated meals. At, at what point do we get to where you have to saw a, an arm or a leg off with a, with a, yeah. with a, with a knife? <laughs> with a Swiss Army knife. Um, yeah, so there was... Because uh, I think the guy that did that... Um, did, he he fell or something down into a cannon and then did a, a got his arm wedged, fall. didn't he? Got his arm wedged. Between um, a boulder and something. Th- there was an area where we had to hike under some boulders that were kind of chalked in place in a, in a narrow slot. And you look up above and you see this boulder that's the size of a house. And you're just thinking, 
I uh, hope you don't choose now to fall. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that third day uh, w- was difficult. Um, there was another narrow slot that day uh, that we had set to photograph. And so we set up shop, set up tents again, and then uh, went up up that canyon. And eventually I got to a point where I just said, Justin, you go further. I'm I'm done. And he actually got some really nice reflected light shots from that day. But it's the area I wish I could have seen. But even if I had known that what it was going to be, uh, I don't think I would have had the will to even get out my camera and shoot it at that point. I think I would have probably just videoed it and experienced it because I was just completely spent. Mm-hmm. So you got a good night's rest, presumably. And were you? Um, did you have a better last two days, or how, how did that, the end of that trip go? So the f- the the last day was going to be all hiking. That that fourth day was it, it was amazing as well. Um, we had that. That's the part of the trip we're, we're deep in the canyon now, and that's the part of the trip where it was supposed to be just like the Narrows in Zion. And it it come it comes very close. Uh, so we, we packed up in the morning, made our way downriver. And at this point, our, our base camp is going to be at the very end of the canyon. So at this point, if we want to photograph anything, we've got all of our pack on, both backpacking gear and photo gear. And so anytime you want to photograph something, you've got to take your camera out and kind of wrangle all the backpacking gear and it's it was a hassle honestly to get it out but the photographs we got that day were just they were worth it they were maybe not some of the best photographs i've taken but for everything i've that we went through to get to those points that there's some of my favorites the the very last one in particular I, i think photographically it holds up on its own as a as a pretty decent image but to me it just really stands out because I know the effort behind the image as well. Do you share these ones in that uh, on your sequence on the videos, or do we look back on one of your other sites to see these? Uh, yeah, so that one's in the video. I actually, uh, my website is is really far behind. They're not on my website, but they're on. <laughs> this is not the best way to view large format images, but they're on Instagram, and they're also that that was the last image I, yeah. I shared on that trip. Okay. Um, so, so we took little, the, sorry, carry on. Uh, I was going to say, so we took our images that day, and at the very end of the day, we set up uh, set up our last base camp, and we set up base camp down in the canyon. And the next day, we, we don't go back up river. There's kind of a weakness in the canyon wall that we had to scramble up, uh, and then you're hiking over dry ground uh, to to get to your exit point. But you, when you, you, so you, you're escaping the canyon after four days of hiking, but you're nowhere near where, presumably, where someone can someone pick you up at this point, or how? no, we're still deep in the wilderness, yeah. very deep in the wilderness. Okay. Um, from looking at kind of uh, uh, maps of the area, relief maps, I thought that once we scrambled out of the canyon, it would be relatively flat hiking, a little bit uphill. Um, but once we got to the canyon wall, it was just more mountains of sandstone. And it was, uh, I 
had actually punctured one of my water bottles. Oh no, this is getting day. bad to worse. So um that 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 boulder obstacle we had to yeah. kind of shimmy down. Um my pack, uh, I store the water bottles on the exterior of it and it just rubbing up against the wall, I braided a hole in it. So I only had the capability to carry two liters of water. And actually on the hike out, uh, kind of ran out of water and had no food and um, got, uh, again, fought exhaustion uh, and starvation. <laughs> so at this point, I've got this image of you crawling along on your hands and knees with a beard down to your, <laughs> down to your knees. <laughs> well, unfortunately, unfortunately um, I, I don't possess the ability to grow a really good beard. So... <laughs> What you saw in the video is about the pinnacle of what I can do. But it, I, I never had to crawl. But you're walking in, at this point, very loose sand, which just takes a lot more energy anyway. Had you, had you given up on any idea of getting an intrepid camera out at this point? You... <laughs> oh, that was a day we hadn't even slotted for yeah. photography. Um, yeah. But there was a point where I could feel myself like kind of stumbling and no longer walking in a straight line just from... Just didn't possess the energy to do it. Um, but we were, at that point, we were maybe a mile and a half away from our exit point. So that kind of, that always would give you an extra boost of energy um, that you're, you're getting when you so, so that does that mean we're back to the beginning or where somebody can pick you up? Is that- no, so that is actually, as we were as we were driving out to the trailhead, uh, we actually took two cars for a little bit and we dropped a car off close to the exit point. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ah, okay. Close to the exit point of the canyon. And then um, that was Justin's car. And then he got in the shuttle vehicle that we were using. And we continued to drive uh, like 21 miles further to the, mm. uh, to the trailhead. Hmm. So, um, at this point, it was the weirdest, one of the strangest sensations I've ever had when we saw cars, because we hadn't seen anybody <laughs> for nearly five straight days, yeah. not a single other person. And so, when you come out of that and you see civilization again, it's just bizarre. We actually, uh, we actually passed Ben as we were driving back in, and so we made a one eighty and. Uh, went to where he was parked and he was like, well, I guess you guys made it. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it was just, we, we go back into the little town outside of Zion. Uh, we, we got a hotel cause we desperately needed to shower at that point. Um, so we stayed in a hotel and then we went and went to a restaurant. It was like, uh, we've been out in genuine wilderness for five days and now we're just, eating at a restaurant and clean again. It was, it was bizarre. I think it's, it's one of those moments, isn't it? Where you, you just think, well, it's like if you go on a, on, on a holiday or a vacation, as you guys would call it. And, and it's so alien to your normal environment. You can't actually imagine that people are just going about their normal business while you're doing these other things. And you're in the middle of this Canyon. And it's odd to think that people are just having a beer and a burger somewhere, you know? Exactly. In the back of your mind, you know that, you know, life goes on, everyone, goes on. everyone else is living yeah. a normal life, but 
you're so focused on I mean, there's nothing easy out there. If you want food, you have to first go filter water and then boil the water and then, you know, wait for it to, nothing is easy. And so you're so consumed with just, you know, are you taking those um, rehydrated things that Ben has? Is that what you're backpacking with? Yes. So to, to save space, we actually took all of those, out of the normal bags they came in and we put them in Ziploc bags. Mm-hmm. And then we had like one bag to fill with water and the meal itself. Uh, so we were eating those and um, actually took a jar of peanut butter, uh, yep. which sounds really heavy and it is, um, but that's a really dense amount of calories. You yeah. just take a couple spoonful and it's, you know, a couple hundred calories and that gives you energy. Yeah. To keep going. So what about the photographic gear you took with you? And you've alluded to, um, you know, when when you see, sorry to keep going on about Ben, but he's my only other reference point. You know, he goes <laughs> he goes off and he's he's got his, he, he's not hiking for two or three days. So he's just generally carrying his camera gear with him, isn't he? He's not carrying like his tent and his, you know, his, under, his underpants. Um, you know, so... How did you? How long did it take you? Did you? Do you think you worked out the optimum sort of packing arrangement and how much? How much photographic gear did you end up taking with you? So, um, quite a bit and <laughs> an unnecessarily large amount, actually. I think my pack was about sixty-five pounds to begin mm-hmm. with. Um, so, I had the Intrepid, the uh, Mark II Intrepid, and, and really, I just can't say enough good things about that camera. Uh, it, it's it's not an exaggeration to say that camera is what made the trip possible. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's getting just, I'm, I don't wrap it up or anything. It's just getting shoved in my pack as is. And, you know, it, it withstood a beating. So I've got that as my camera. Uh, two lenses, a 90 millimeter and a 180 millimeter. And they probably weigh as much as the camera together or more. Oh, they, they weigh more, quite a bit mm-hmm. more actually. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, I took four film holders. So I have at any one point, I have the potential to take eight shots. Uh, two of the film holders I loaded with Velvia, one with Ektar and one with Delta 100. And that was kind of what I kept stocked. Um, I always shoot doubles, but on that trip, it just became a point where I was going to have to shoot singles because, I, uh, I knew that four film holders was not going to be enough to last me for the trip. So I had to pack along the ability to change film out in the field. Yeah. So I also have a dark, uh, a bag. I'm not using one of those changing tents. It's just a bag. Yep. And, and some boxes to put the old. Exactly. So I only brought along, I brought along two boxes. One box held, um, uh, well, to back up a little bit, Fuji used to sell these actually hundred sheets of film. So the box is nearly twice as twice as big. So mm-hmm. I loaded up all my packets of film into that box. Okay, and then so your different film stocks. So that'd be your Velvia fifty, your Ektar. Uh, did you take? Yes, Ektar, and then uh, Ilford Delta one hundred. So that's all of those are in one box, mm-hmm. and then I have a second empty box where I'm un- unloading all of my sheets of film. 
And so as I unload... Irrespective of whether it's Ektar... Um, exactly. They're all getting mixed together. On the basis that you'll work it out later, which is which. Right. And, and you know, of course, they have all the little notches, notches in them. Yeah, but um, Ektar and Velvia are pretty close. The, the <laughs> notch on them is pretty close. So. Oh, but a cross-processing will be fine. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was actually on my phone... Uh, on the little app I have, I made notes of the order of film that I unloaded. And so that way... Very organized. So you knew, even if the notches mis- tried to mislead you, right. how, you'd, how you'd stack the film. Right. And so as I'm later on, when I'm back from the trip, as I'm unloading from that box, I just have my f- my phone right beside me and I'm making sure... I'm double-checking, selecting... Uh, filling the notches as best I can, but making sure that the order is correct. And it, it was. So um, two tripods, one for video, one for uh, uh, the large format camera. Um, and then a, a full are video. They, are they lightweight tripods or for the hiking? Are they carbon fiber? Or, I guess. Yes, they're, they're very lightweight. So the tripods actually weren't, weren't an issue. Uh-huh. Um, and then I've got my full video kit as well. Uh, so just, uh, and your drone. Yes. <laughs> and the drone. I took four batteries for the drone, which is, that was two pounds worth of batteries. <laughs> uh, so basically my plan was to expend one battery every day, except for the hike out. And so I took those batteries down to dangerously <laughs> low levels, but the, the the footage I got, I was just, I'm so proud of it. I, I think it. Can we see that on your <laughs> YouTube channel? As well? Yeah. So if you, if you go to my YouTube channel, typically, uh, stylistically, I made those videos a little bit different. I did a lot of B roll right at the beginning, a lot of voiceover. And most of that is drone footage. Okay. Um, so I had the full, full drone kit. I had a, to keep all that charged, I had a small solar panel and a battery bank, me. which kept up, uh, actually kept up really well. I was really pleased with how that worked. Um, I had a GoPro for my video kit and then full backpacking gear, uh, tents, sleeping bag, stove, all, all that. So it was no right wonder, at... No wonder you um, felt the need to bodybuild before this trip just to carry those lot with you yeah it was uh, the f- the food was really heavy too and obviously that decreases in weight over you could time. have always eaten justin i suppose could you? <laughs> did you keep yeah. eyeing him up though is that charlie chaplin isn't the gold rush film where he goes a bit um he gets a bit of cabin fever and runs out of food and he's he's with a guy who's out there with him a follow fellow prospector and every time they look at him he sees a chicken and uh, and he has to keep stopping himself from going to eat him because he's really not a chicken. He's a man. You know, did you look at Justin and see like a? It a never got to. It never got to that dire of straits. Um, but but last day, as I was talking on the hike out, I completely ran out of food. It, yeah. I, I should mention beforehand. You know, we're we're planning exactly how much food we're going to eat per day, and. Basically, you don't want to go over that because you know that that's taken away from the next day. We we had absolutely nothing left over. Yeah. So for that last day's hike out, I'm literally scraping the peanut butter jar trying to get <laughs> any amount of calories I can just to recharge. Um, just Man. And there's nothing to eat. Spent. I mean, 
you're not proper wild bushmen, are you? So you're not going to be like digging roots up and spearing mountain lions and fish and stuff if there are fish. But exactly, I have absolutely no experience, and there's no there's nothing there either. I mean, yeah. I, I can't remember. I think there's a yeah, few I rabbits. We... Ben Ben Horn set that uh, video up to capture mountain lions, and I think he. He kept he captured a rabbit or something I think or he saw a rabbit or a hare or something running past I suppose yeah I, I want to say we saw a few deer um, yeah. but I, I would have no way how to <laughs> no knowledge of how to obtain one of those <laughs> you, you need to have shot it that's what you needed to have done I, I didn't I didn't pack my gun I, oh I well there have. you go but so um, were you using this um, I saw looking down your I've lost it now a Gitso Traveler tripod is that the one you were using. Yes, um, I, I took a bit of flack online for my less than glowing review of that tripod. You, but I said, "Well, there is a review. I saw a review a minute ago. Now I've gone and lost it, but it, I know it's here somewhere because I saw it." It it's I, I actually still use it to this day. It's not my favorite tripod, but it was another one of those key pieces of gear where I had to have that. Um, it really lowered the weight of my kit. It was. It, it's still. Because because I'm six foot four, I have to have a reasonably tall tripod, mm-hmm. and it it does the best of being lightweight, uh, tall, and um, it, its payload is good. Uh, I, there's some things that I don't like about the tripod, but it, they don't outweigh the positives of the tripod. Uh, now that I've been able to use it for a couple of years. I think tripods for large format photography, I mean, it depends very much on the type of large format photography you, you do. I mean, my, most of mine, to be fair, is done out of the back of the car, quite frankly, Alan. You know, so mm-hmm. I've got a couple of heavy Manfrotto tripods, which I wouldn't want to try and walk anywhere with, quite frankly. You know, yeah, that's, um, that was my first tripod, was a Manfrotto, but yeah, I've got a couple of them, but they're both, not, neither of them are carbon fiber and they're pretty heavy, you know, as far as these things go. Yeah, what's that got in? Simon, do you what? What's your you're you're not really a, a an outdoor hiker, are you? Uh, well, I know you. I know you went up. We won't talk about this, but I know you did <laughs> went up and looked at some clouds this today. But we'll save that for another podcast. Yeah, yeah, that that's uh, save 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 my content. But that wasn't with a large format camera, was it? So no. You, do, no. Are you in, uh, are you intending to do any hiking in I'm, in Stoke on Trent Slot Canyon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah um i do I, i've i've given more and more thought to how i'm actually going to get out into the countryside with a large format camera and i've got mm. two cameras to use and what one of them is you know within the earlier episodes i've talked about a few times my meridian um especially a technical camera from from about 1949 but that's about as heavy as my toyo 45 <laughs> isn't it as yeah we just, and that's and, and that's, that's, that's they, to, to be fair that's 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 good to i think it's actually lighter than your toyo especially with the lenses that i'm using with it at least anyway. yeah yeah possibly um, so taking i want to take that out more often but it's 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 limited uh because the 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 lenses have got very there's there's not, there's not much or any movement uh, available in the in those lenses, so they just it's, so if you want to do something uh, funky with them, you, you, you're going to get vignetted and things like that. Um, I'm now in the situation where I've got two good lenses with two good shutters for my Sinar uh, F2, 
um, mm. which I, I think I mentioned in the previous show that F stands for field, apparently. Um, but I think you've got Does to, it? Yeah, you, I think you're going to need to be built like Alan to be able to carry the thing absolutely <laughs> anywhere. Um, I, well, I, I mean, I, yeah, I had a sign RF, which I upgraded to the sign RP, which has got which made it even heavier. And I, I wouldn't contemplate carrying that thing anywhere, to be yeah. truthful. Ben uses a monorail, but he uses one of those expensive, uh, what, what is it, uh, the Swiss, Arco, yeah, the, Arco Swiss yeah. monorail. Yeah, he switched thing. to that. Yeah. That's a very nice camera. Yeah. Well, I'm, the idea of taking that Cyanar out is very appealing to me. I do. Yeah. I do want to use, and I'm. I'm I used to use mine. I used to use mine out in the field, but from a car. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm. I'm at the stage at the moment where I'm scouting for locations. Mm. So uh, today it was all. It was all digital today, but I had an eye out for things. Well, could I come back here, or could I come back there? And um, yeah. I'm, I'm really struggling to to find things that I think are worthy of large format but that's 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 the mindset that i have at the moment which is yeah, probably okay. not the right mindset but that's no, it's okay it's whatever really well i think you can you can sort of get to the point where a shot just isn't isn't doesn't you you can't justify that shot so you might just take it on digital and you find well that's quite a nice shot that was i should have done it with uh, on large mm. format so um you can box yourself in with that with that kind of attitude so i'm a bit bit wary about that but right. I, I actually want to just take the conversation back a little bit uh, back into that canyon uh, because i've got uh, two questions one is a very short question and that's mm -hmm. just what was the actual distance that you traveled from one end to the other um oh goodness i want to say it's i hold the gps up on my video at the end but i want to say it was just under 22 miles which um actually if you for five days that's actually not that uh, that difficult or not that big of a distance mm -hmm. but they were very difficult miles to cover yeah um I, I kind of have a good feel for how quickly i hike and i was hiking we were covering miles about one third of the pace that i normally do yeah because it was just like a wrestling match with a hiking trail it was just it, it did sound like an epic trip. There's no choice about it. No, no. Um, it was, and I don't, I, I genuinely, I, I think with um, landscape photographers, there's this tendency to embellish about how adventurous the trip was. Um, <laughs> and I'm definitely not trying to do that, but it, it really was just an amazing adventure. It was, it was wild. It was just, one of the best times I've ever had. I was I was beginning to get claustrophobic just listening to it. <laughs> yeah, reliving day three. I think I did get a little I think I'd have been quite happy up to that first campsite. And then, uh, do you know, I'd have been done. That would have been enough for me <laughs> to have spent a couple of nights there. Maybe just stayed and explored that one canyon and chased that light a little bit more over those few days. And then I'll say, Alan, if you, mate, if you want to walk the other 15 miles, it's fine. I'll be here. <laughs> with the beer and steak okay i think there is actually supposedly a way to access that particular spot that's a little easier to get to but there's okay. there's this one area that's a bit uncertain uh, i think you have to down climb a little bit which i was not interested in doing with my full pack yeah um so but i think it is actually accessible and I had, Sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, go ahead. Other question. Um, yeah, the the other question. Uh, 
you use the phrase um, shooting doubles, and yeah. uh, which I, I I think I know what that means, but it's not it's not a phrase that I've come across, and uh, I'm just in, interesting to you have because Ben. Ben Horn was Did talking he? about it. Oh well. well, let's 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 do let's do <laughs> let's this pretend. one again. Because <laughs> clearly, pretend you hadn't. just just like the um, the the zone system, it takes quite a few goes to to get some things into my head. Yeah, so basically, it's just shooting two sheets of film on a scene. Um, typically, I'll do that if uh, you know so many things in large format can go wrong. You can your film can shift. You can forget to change the setting and so shooting two sheets of film is kind of insurance against one of them having something wrong with it but also i'll do it um more so on velvia if i'm kind of um if i'm kind of stuck between two different exposure times i'll shoot one at one exposure time and then one you know a half a stop brighter or darker whatever I, th I think the scene will will tend toward so in that canyon that was going to chew up a lot of film very quickly and so i just had to go with one sheet at a time and um, for the most part there the were occasionally i still shot doubles if i was really really not certain about an exposure i would burn two sheets on it but um yeah for the most part shooting singles worked out really well Oh, that, I think that's... Ben. I think Simon Ben talked about a phenomenon. I don't know whether it's to do with static or the film kind of sticking or not sitting flat. And he's talking about tapping the film holders. Am I? Am I making that up, um, uh, Alan? Uh, that... No. The, so the film can actually uh, shift. You, you know, you slot it into the film holder, but it, there's still a little bit of wiggle room in there. So. What I do is before every exposure, when I pull the dark slide, I'll tap the top of the film holder, and that kind of settles it into the base mm -hmm. of the film holder. Now, Ben has videos where he's talked about a different phenomenon where, and th this is more to deal with 8x10 film because your surface area is so massive, yeah. but the film won't sit exactly flat. Um, okay. and, and I can't remember if that's due to temperature or humidity or... Yep. or what so you'll have basically you know maybe the center of your film is a millimeter closer to the uh to the lens than the edges of your film and that can create some areas of softness you don't really see that on four by five because it's the much smaller you know it's one fourth the surface area and so there's just not enough there for it to, to how bow does, how does ben get over that then does he does the tapping thing work for that as well you know, I can't remember. He did a video about it. Um, yeah, I think that's probably I, I where I'm, what I'm half remembering, to be honest. Uh, I, truthfully, I can't remember how he... And honestly, it may be the tapping that gets over it, but generally we we do that for all of our uh, all of our exposure. So I don't know what he was doing differently. Maybe he was just making sure the film was correctly acclimated to the temperature. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. So I'd like to talk to you about... Um, just sticking with that experience a little bit in in the on on that trip, did you end up using many camera movements on the Intrepid? Uh, and if so, which not ones? not a lot because 
we're in a slot canyon, so you've got a lot of objects that are vertical, mm-hmm. but they're also extending off into from foreground to background. So I remember in one of your episodes, you talked about if you're shooting in a forest full of trees, there's not many movements you can do to get all the trees. No, that was probably in. Ben, actually. I mean, Ben talks about it a lot, doesn't he, when he's trying yeah. to... You know, he's looking at the as he's um, getting his cone of focus moving away. Sometimes anything poking through that becomes a bit blurry at the top or something. Yeah, so it's basically the same principle. There's there's no cone of focus that's going to get things that are vertical that are in your foreground Mm -hmm. and things that are vertical in your background all in focus. You just do that like any other camera. You stop down and and hope for the best. Hope for the best. Yeah, I do that quite Um, a lot. my 90 millimeter lens is limited to very, very small movements or it will start to vignette. Uh, my 180, you can move it all over the place. But generally in slot canyons, if you're shooting straight up or down canyon, there's not many movements that are going to help you. No. Okay. Now, what about the other interesting thing I picked up on your videos, or one of the other interesting things was uh, you've got one video from a couple of years ago, uh, how to add a Fresnel lens to an Intrepid 4x5. Mm-hmm. So this is this is an area where we haven't really touched on, I don't think, when we're talking about uh, ground glass and, and large format. Now, I, I hear lots about Fresnel screens, and I read about companies in the past you could buy Maxwell screens for certainly for medium format cameras and BT inter screens to make things brighter. But a Fresnel is uh, is most, you can go and buy a a reading Fresnel for a few pounds off Amazon on a a thin plastic sheet. And I've heard people of cutting those down and putting those in the, uh, um, on top of the ground glass. I'm not sure whether you put it on top of the ground glass towards you or away from you. So tell us about Fresnel screens. <laughs> you did a video about it, and it's an area that confuses the heck out of me. And I'm wondering whether yeah. I need one, whether I need one or not, really. So I, I think that um, I think Justin Lowry actually uses a cut down reading Fresnel. Okay. So for those out there that don't know what a Fresnel lens is, it's basically just a plastic sheet and uh, engraved in that sheet are just very small concentric circles. And what it does is it uh, it brightens the image because when you're focusing on the, the ground glass, particularly with um, either slower lenses or wide angle lenses, your corners are going to be very, very dark. You may have a, a center bright spot, but your corners are going to be very dark. So a Fresnel lens doesn't actually brighten it. It doesn't make it any brighter, uh, excuse me, brighter. But what it does is it expands that center hotspot into the corners. Mm. Um, so that that's how. So how if that you were works. cutting, so I, I've actually I've read of somebody. It might have even been Justin about cutting down reading Fresnels. And, and so I've, I've actually got a couple in the cupboard somewhere and I've not done anything with them because I wasn't quite sure what I was supposed to be doing with them to be truthful. I mm-hmm. wasn't sure whether I had to cut it down so the circles are in the middle still or I could just cut it from one edge. Common sense tells me I should just make it smaller and cut an equal amount off from each side and end up with the circular bit in the middle. But I don't really know. Then I don't know where to put it. Do I put it There'll be lots of people out there shouting at this podcast, I'm sure, saying how stupid I am. But do I put that 
um, on on the on my side, if you know what I mean, of the of the ground glass, or does it go towards the lens side? Where presumably yeah, it's just so, on top towards me. That's my instincts are that I put it towards me. So I actually people yelled at me in the uh, comments of that video that I put it on the wrong side. That oh right. Um, I have this is. Okay, back up a little bit. I had a Fresnel lens on my Shinhao. Mm-hmm. I put it on the lens side of the ground glass. So, inside uh, the camera. Correct. I then bought a Maxwell with, Hang on. Screw. So, was that with the... Uh, sorry, just, I need to pin you down on this. So, with the little ridgy bits that you could probably feel with your fingernail, would they be facing the lens? Or uh, yes, I did that facing the lens. Now, I'm not... I'm not certain if that makes a difference. I don't think it does. Okay. Um, but I had that on my Shinhao. Then I bought a Maxwell screen for my Shinhao. Can you still, which can you still buy those? A Fresnel lens. Can you as well. can still buy those? Can you those Maxwell screens? Yeah. So that's interesting. I, I was. I thought that he was getting out of. Uh, out yeah, of that. I don't know. I'll, I'll do. But some I actually did a video about Maxwell screens, so a lot of people will message me about it and just recently within the past month someone said that they had contacted okay. him and he's still making four by five ground glass so anyway to, to uh w- with regard to that there is a fresnel and it is on the lens side of the uh ground glass and then when i put this one on the intrepid i also put it on the lens side of the ground glass i've never noticed any focus shift whatsoever. Uh, people screamed at me. I've never had a problem with it. And I, so people uh, say, "Is it?" So the people who are shouting it, they're saying you should have put the Fresnel on, sort of facing you on on the view, yes. on, on the person side of the on, of the ground glass. Yes, and uh, so actually, yeah. I'd, I'd had a conversation with another large format photographer, Alex Burke, and he does the same way I do it. He puts it on the lens side of it and never had an issue with it. Okay. The the re- the reason behind that is because the Fresnel is a lens and it bends light and so the light you're taking from the camera lens also gets bent by the Fresnel and so it brings it into focus at a different point at a slightly different point than uh, is uh than is normal. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just stopping down no, enough to never have an topic. issue with it. Do you it. have any view on this, Simon? Because it's not an area, I don't think it's an area we've touched on, but it's one that's confused the heck out of me since I got into large format photography. Well, it, it seems like it just works both ways, doesn't it? You, you, well, it would appear to, but obviously no, there, are in, people out there, there are people out there who would be shouting saying, well, no, it doesn't. Well, when I say about work works both ways, as in whatever's bad about it working one way, surely that also applies working the other way. It's just you're just shifting the focus fractionally on one side, or shifting the focus fractionally on the other. Um, I don't really yeah. see if you're going to get any any net change, really. The I think the issue is if you put it on the um, viewer side of the ground glass, um, the the image that you are shifting is what is projected onto the ground glass. Yeah. So even right, if you're yeah. even if you're shifting that image a little bit, 
if it's to fo- if it's in focus to you by looking through the Fresnel, that automatically means it's in focus on the ground glass because you're just projecting whatever's on the ground glass. This it sounds though like a, a similar kind of argument to when you're enlarging a you, well, you're using an enlarger and you're whether you, whether you put a bit of paper in or not. Exactly because you've got the thickness of the paper there. Yeah, I'm not sure. Making I'm a not- difference. Yeah, I'm not sure it's quite the same argument, but we'll skip over that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's too late. It's getting too late it's in the a, evening. It's, 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 there's a similarity there, even if it's not exactly yeah. the same kind of thing, and it and it doesn't seem to make any difference with with the thickness well, the, of the paper there, does it? And, no. and that's, I guess, to take that in a bit different direction, maybe a little bit deeper. I, I see these arguments about film, and I guess more so black and white. You'll get these people that say. You know, oh, the only way to shoot black and white is to get a densitometer and know exactly where your zones are and exactly to the second how to explode, how to expose and develop for N or N plus one. They can get very technical with it. And that's fine. That's great. If you enjoy that, then more power to you. But film is very forgiving. I mean, if you want to go out with just a, a, an incident meter and meter for black and white and odds are it's going to work out well for you that way so having said that i think you've done a video somewhere on the zone system haven't you i have had to meter don't deny it oh yeah if you want to go that route and and meter for the zone system i saw uh, it earlier and i'm sure i'll listen to you talking about it it's uh it's incredibly dry and boring but if you if you want to watch some of us find it really interesting (laughs) well like i said i hate going back and listening to myself talk and that video is 100 talking the sound of my own voice but uh you you know you can get as technical as you want or you can just go by feel and and there's really no one way to do it and that's that's the part i enjoy I, I, i enjoy i enjoy learning about all that stuff but i don't apply it in a in a proper way that you're saying. I mean, I, I do I do an adapted version of the zone system through kind of experience and working out how to rate the film based on mm-hmm. the based on how I know it's printing. And you know, if I'm looking at my negatives and I see I'm well, I'm not getting enough shadow detail, then I in future I'll rate that film a bit slower, and that becomes my standard, and that's that's the starting point. And then from once I know I'm getting shadows where I want, then then I can inverted commas place the shadow down into zone four or whatever and then i'll if i know it's a seven stop brightness range i'll just knock a bit off the development time so i'm sort of applying those but in a fairly in a fairly i'm not getting the film sweat not getting the sweats over it you know i'm just i'm just applying some basic principles to try and help me control the negative to 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 print in the way that i I would like it to be printed And obviously that that's working for you and it is. Yeah, you're having fun with it and you're creating images that uh, yeah. hopefully you enjoy. And I, I guess what I get hung up on is people that say that there's only one way to make images. Like the only way to use the zone system is if you yeah. you know measure the density of your film beforehand. Well, no, it's not. That's yeah. one way well, to you, do it. There are there are people around like that. I mean, I, fortunately, we don't come across too many of them. <laughs> I've just, <laughs> I, I just, I guess my ultimate point is we, we've got to get along because film is, you know, it's not the most popular thing in the world and we need people to keep making it. And when, when 
people see conversations like that, it, it's off-putting. I mean, it certainly is. You want to be welcoming and bringing people into this community, not saying that the only way to shoot something is this specific way. I don't think we have anybody in the Facebook group who um, would be that uh, dictatorial. So you have um, another interesting one. So I've just seen your large format photography Maxwell screen. So that was four years ago. So if folks want to learn more about Maxwell screens, then uh, Alan has that on his um, on his YouTube channel. And five years ago, you you posted one called "How to Develop Four by Five Film Using BTZ's Tubes." Now um, these have been mentioned before on the podcast, and I have seen them. And I've got one of the BTZ. Um, uh, first, th- what do you call thing that goes over the camera to look through? You- <laughs> Dark Come cloth. on, help me out. Dark cloth. Dark cloth. Yes, that's it. I'm getting as bad as you, Simon, with my memory. <laughs> um, so I've got one that with an elastic cord around it, and you and you stretch it over the camera. I don't actually don't like it that much, and it's got two sleeves. It's a bit like putting your arm in a in a. In I a have that bag. same one. Isn't that so annoying to lose? I, I don't use the sleeves. I just, well, I, I I find I I have to put so much force to stretch it over the back of my camera. I end up shifting all the camera. Yeah, the, you have to really make sure it's locked down. Yeah, so I'm not. Maybe I should have bought one that goes for five by seven or something. I don't know. Anyway, it's very lightweight, and I can see the attraction of it. But this is the same company, is an American company, and they make these tubes, which are basically tubes. Yeah, so they're what, just. What, uh, is it? Is it low volume chemistry, and you roll these things backwards and forwards with the film in? How how does how do they? Work? Uh, yeah, very low volume chemistry. So basically, it's just a cylinder. Um, uh, it's roughly eight inches long. So you have the base of the cylinder that's exactly five inches, and you kind of curl your film up and put it in there. And then just the one, or would you put one at a time, or is this depending on how long it is? I guess do you put more? Yeah, just one. One sheet per tube, um, mm-hmm. and then the lid has all your chemistry in it. I, I want to say it's been a bit since I've developed any black and white, but I want to say it's just thirty milliliters okay. per wow. uh, per tube. So you screw that in, obviously in the dark, and then you just in a uh, so let's say you've got you know four sheets of films, so you've got four tubes, you put them in a little water tub, so they're kind of floating in there. And then you just spin them back and forth, just agitate them continuously. Um, The reason I switched to those is previously I was using a Patterson tank. Mm -hmm. Uh, We pour the chemistry through the top, but were you just uh, using what they what you guys call the taco method, where you're just squeezing those bad boys in and hoping for the best? Yes, and I actually wasn't having a problem with that. What I was finding is the the developer I was using was relatively concentrated. And so every image I took, I developed, I was noticing this gradient between mm. it would be dark to light across the image. And I could not figure it out. And finally it occurred to me as I'm pouring that chemistry in the tank, yeah. the bottom of the film is getting that initial burst of developer before the top. And that's when all your developing happens the quickest in the very beginning. And so I couldn't pour it in fast enough to get an even development. And so that's why I switched. I needed something to uh, uh, where I could get it even right off the bat. And I'm sure a way around that would have been to just use a more diluted 
yeah developer that would have worked wouldn't it also i mean there are there are other systems that have come out since then of course you've got the mod 54 and the and the uh stearman press 445 tank yeah and i noticed um somebody and forgive me because i've now forgotten again i think it's 20th century camera simon did you pick up on this they it's one of the i think his name is jeff and i can't remember what his surname is but he, he makes yeah inserts for patterson one liter tanks and they and they they they're like spirals for putting your four or five film in, but he also does them in six by nine and five by seven and some other odd sizes as well. I was looking at his website yesterday and I think he charged about 50 bucks for these inserts and someone was somebody, somebody commented on my lab box and said, Oh, I sold it for twice what I paid for it. And I've gone and bought some of Jeff's reels. And I said, what, what are you talking about? And, and then he sent me the link. It's in the Facebook group from was, a couple of days ben, ago. Ben Reynolds, wasn't it? It was Ben, wasn't it? Yeah, that's it. Sorry, Ben. Yeah. So Ben had bought this uh, and I thought that looked pretty good. And I, I was looking at it cause I thought, actually, could I develop my x-ray film in one of these 20th century spirals? Because the problem with the x-ray film I use is it's got emulsion on both sides. So if I, if I, if I use the mod 54, which has little fingers to hold the um, the, the she- each individual sheet in place, you have to make sure that the non-emulsion side is in contact with the fingers. Otherwise, the fingers rub the emulsion off. Well, yeah. you know, if you've got double emulsion on both sides, well, that's a non-starter. And I think the Stearman Press as well, the, St- Stearman, the Stearman Press uh, SP445 tank, which is excellent, I think there's a danger there as well as the of, the emulsion rubbing but as far as i can see on the 20th century camera i think it's 20th century camera um spirals they the only part of the film that's coming into contact is just at the edges the top and bottom and that look i'm going to look at it a bit closer and see because at the moment i'm trade develop trade developing my x-ray films on glass and stuff but it's a bit of a faff i'd rather be able to do it in a in a tank I, mean, uh, I was going to say I'm almost too scared to do any developing at the moment. After after every every time I do it, something goes horribly wrong with my. Yeah, but you're using tank. some you're using some crap tank from about five thousand years ago with, <laughs> which has just got you you're just too tight. Sorry, that's an expression we use over here, uh, Alan. Oh, we use tight, same tight. here. Do you know what that you know you know what I'm saying? Yeah. If I call him tight, it means like he's got short arms and deep pockets. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing, or, the thing is, I I know that. Well, I, I strongly believe that if I go out and buy some super glue, I can actually fix this and it'll, it'll work perfectly. Get yourself... I, I think you get one of those 20th century... Have a word with Ben and see how he's getting on with it, but I think that looks a good system. I, I would recommend the Stearman tank. That's pretty good. Uh, like that as well. So, yeah. Or you you send all your colour film out to um, a lab, do you, Alan? Or are you doing some colour processing yourself? Yeah, I haven't developed any color film. Um, I, I don't quite have the area to keep the. I, th- I think with color film, you have to be more careful about your temperatures. I just don't have the area yeah. to do that. So yeah, you do have to be a bit careful. I mail it off to a lab in New York, which is always a bit nerve wracking because hmm. de- depending on the postal Surely, service. So, are they a good lab? Are they good enough for you to give them a shout out? Who are you using? They are. It's called. Prouse Productions, P-R-A-U-S Productions. Their website is fourphotolab.com, 
It's the number four photolab.com. Um, and they do a good job. It's, I always send things like overnight, like the most expensive way to ship something because my, my theory is that they'll be more careful with those packages. So, uh, um, it's always, it's always a sigh of relief when I have the developed film in my mail a few days later. Hmm. I think it's good if you can find a lab that you can rely on. Oh, absolutely. I, I do. I, I pretty much do everything myself, color or black and white. So, uh, and I'm never really sure whether I'm doing the color properly, but I don't use much color, so I don't worry too much about it. <laughs> um, I had a question. I think we maybe touched on it before we started recording. The the other. Uh, Yet another interesting uh, area or post you made, which I sat up and took notice of, but I didn't fully understand it all, was um, uh, sourcing. You have a trouble sourcing Volvia 50 in in the USA, which I wasn't aware of, and you tried various sources, but then you hit on some trick, which you shared with everybody. I don't know whether it was wise to share with folks because, you know... Um, <laughs> Uh, but so, Fuji is still making presumably f- this film at the moment, but who knows how long it'll last. But um, what's your trick for buying Fuji Velvia 50? This was actually a trip, a trick I got from another photographer. And I, before I posted that video, I was a little bit anxious because I didn't, I didn't know how it would affect the supply and demand. Um, so I actually <laughs> talked to that photographer and said, do you think it's a good idea? Do you mind if I post this? And he was fine with it. And we've, checked it that's probably been a year or so ago and they've always had stock but basically um velvia 50 is not available in sheet form in the u.s not an eight by ten or four by five and i fairly certain it's like that for multiple countries but it's still available readily in japan and there are multiple ebay distributors that that sell it and i've bought from several different ones. And honestly, I've had very good luck, but the prices can be a little bit all over the place. But if you go to Amazon Japan, um, that's just amazon.jp, they actually have it available and it's very reliable. You have to set up a completely separate account from your normal Amazon account, wherever you're located, but you can get it there. And the, the shipping is actually scary fast, how quickly they get it here. But um, I, I know that a lot of people have done that and messaged me since then, and everybody's had great luck with it. So uh, my initial worry was that it would suck through the stock of Velvia 50 and it wouldn't be available for anyone. But my my hope is, and knowing Fuji and how they care for film, or rather don't care for film, this is my hope maybe. Uh, placed in the wrong area, but I, I'm hoping that they'll see that there is a demand for this stuff and keep making it. Yeah. So rather um, than just not share the thing, the the logic is well, let's share, let's get this out here, and let's try and see if we can boost demand a bit more. Exactly. I think that the way that we keep the film community going is you just and Ben has said this multiple times. You have to vote with your pocketbook. You have to. Yeah. Uh, show them that we will spend money on this because they can't just make film for nostalgic purposes. There has to be, they are a business. Um, But Kodak seems to be 
much more dedicated. To- well, they're talking. Yeah, so, Ect, uh, Ectochrome is supposedly coming out in one twenty, and I know the Kodak reps were talking about. Uh, did you at the photography show earlier this year? Simon um, was his name. Andrew, the Kodak. Yeah, guy. Andy Church. Andy Church. And I didn't, uh, he was sort of holding court, wasn't he, with all these like 20 or 30 film photographers around him. And I missed most of what he had to say because I was I was in a food queue with Hamish Gill buying an overpriced sandwich. And uh, when we came back, he was talking about it. And I, I still didn't really catch anything of what he had to say. Um, but I think people were talking to him about 120. And maybe, did they mention sheet film as well? I'm, I'm sure they did, but I was in a similar kind of situation to you. I didn't, I didn't really get to hear any of that. No, no. But I've, I've heard I've, there's problems with, um, well, I, I don't know if I'm talking out of turn here or not, but I, I've, I believe there was issues perhaps with, um, with, the, with the backing paper and stuff like that. But the other, with 120 at least anyway, um, certainly I've, I've, I've heard somewhere to say that, you know, they're thinking, well, they're making it for, uh, 35 mil so why can't they just make it for 120 and it's uh, from what i understand it's it's virtually a different product uh, mm. because you know you've you've got completely different ways of actually having to um, get these things developed uh, delivered to your camera and the you know, the the transport mechanisms and so on and that that ultimately means you end up with um a different way of um delivering the emulsion so to speak I don't know. I'd love to shoot large format slide film. You can buy, I've seen on ebay.co.uk, so there you go, that's what you were talking about, Alan, I think, direct from Japan. Um, so that you pay here, right, £144.70, which is over $100 certainly for 20 sheets. And the trouble we have, I don't know if you have it the same if you buy from Japan, is that nine times out of ten, this will get stuck in UK customs and and I would have to probably pay another twenty or thirty pounds to the to the money grabbing customs people on top of this. I know I know that some people after watching that video were concerned about it. In the US, I don't think I've heard of anyone having any issues with us. I, I certainly haven't. No, the and Japanese that's... are probably too scared of Donald Trump to try and charge us. <laughs> <laughs> they know they can walk all over us. <laughs> Well, there's a topic. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll we'll shy away from that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I, but I'd love to I'd love to shoot some color, um, large format film. But I, in my head, I rash my large format output is like most of my photography is black and white. But I know I can take my black and white image and put it in my large format in larger and make a print. I can't easily make a scan, although I think you you were sharing some videos with us. Was it 700 or 750 yeah. Epson? So no, is, that, is, have, that a, is that a 4.5 or is that a 120 and you're frigging it somehow? Um, they make 4x5 holders for yeah, it. Yeah, I thought they did. Uh, is it the 700? That was the first model. Uh, if you go online. And 120 as well. 700, I think, isn't it? It's the first one. That yes. Yes, they have the 700 and the 750. And I think the only difference between those is you can wet mount on the 750. Is there an an 800? And then now they've been replaced. Yes, there's an 800 and an 850. And the the scanning hardware in between the 700 series and the 800 series is exactly the same. 
the A100 series uses, I want to say, an LED light that is ready to go immediately. When you first power on the scanner I have, it takes a few minutes for the what light have you got? to warm up. Have you got up. 700 or 750? Um, 700. And so you, you turn it on and it says, scanner is warming up, please wait a few minutes. So it's no big deal to wait. And then once I get it scanned, I, I have an inkjet printer. Uh, I know that's not real printing, but uh, I'll run that printer and um, it gets very, very good results as far as sharpness goes from the scans. I mean, people kind of badmouth flatbed scanners. And, and certainly for smaller formats, 35 millimeter, they're not great. But, but you mentioned wet, ma- you met, wet and wet mounting. You can and, just get uh, stunning detail. Sorry, you mentioned wet mounting a little while ago, and that was something I wasn't too mm-hmm. familiar with until I heard someone talking about it a while ago, and and I still couldn't work out how to do it. But what's uh, I was, what I was going to say, Andrew? I, I think we've got some technical problems here, but so I, th- I think um, I don't think Andrew's uh, Alan's quite hearing you in sync. You yep. there? You there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. Okay. Um, all right. It's. I mean, it sounds like it's okay to me. Um, and so it's two minutes and twenty. We were just beginning to talk about. I was wet. very interested in, in probing Alan, so to speak, over his uh, knowledge of wet scanning. Yes. It's an area, a thing that I. I'm assuming you get better contact and stuff, but well, I just need someone to explain. Let's it to go you. straight into because that's that's pretty much where we where we are. So, okay. do you want to ask Alan about? Wet mountain, and, yeah. uh, and then I'll yeah. just I'll just find or well, oh, wet dear. scanning even. <laughs> dear, oh dear. Uh, yeah, and um, I'll just take it from there. Like, <laughs> Sorry, tough to come back from that one. So, uh... <laughs> I hope we can uh, take 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 two. So, Alan, a little, a little while ago, you were talking about uh, uh, you mentioned wet scanning. So that was that's an area that, uh, or or a subject that I knew very little about. In fact, still do. So, uh, can you tell us a bit about wet scanning and what sort of scanner I need to be able to do that, and what are the benefits and so on and so forth? So, I don't actually. Um do any wet scanning but i'm pretty sure it's the 750 and the 850 series of epson scanners and then if you have anything drum scan that they put this fluid on your film and it just gets a much better contact between the film and the glass that the scanner has to shoot through yeah so you can get these things called uh newtonian rings if the yep. film contacts glass directly, and I'm I'm not familiar with the physics of light to know what causes those, but wet mounting uh, completely eliminates that, gives you a much better, uh, much sharper image. But if you've but got your, actually if you've got your four or five film in a dedicated Epson sheet film holder, then the the negative isn't in contact with either the base of the scanner glass or the all the glass in the lid, presumably, is it? So you don't get those... Right, things. ideally. Right. But then, I suppose, when your film is in a 4.5 holder, there is a risk that it's not sitting flat. It can be maybe sagging in the middle or something, I don't know. So that 
you can see that basically i can see the sense in some system where you've got the film stuck to the glass using uh, i mean is it is it water or do, or do they use something else there'll be folks out there listening to this podcast who can tell us i'm sure but maybe do, do you know alan um I, I don't know exactly what it's called but it is a, a specific solution i'm, I'm fairly mm. certain it's not just water do you know anything about uh, this simon but I, I don't know what it is uh, well no i the well the other parts of this is it, it, the, this this wet uh, mountain system is that actually <laughs> going to be uh, going into some kind of frame, or is that literally no, it's straight on, on, the glass. on the glass and that's it? Yeah, hmm. I believe so. Yeah, I believe so. It can get quite messy. Yeah. as as I understand it. So, somebody listening to this show, there's a topic for you. There's lots of knowledgeable people out there. Tell us all about. Uh, uh, wet scanning we know we think we know the theory yeah, but I, we, I we, need, we need we need to know the detail there we go you're not scanning at all at the moment are you simon or are you uh i'm 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 struggling a little bit with with four by five mm. um i mean the the method i actually use for digitizing is um uh, using the camera rod and the scanner i don't i don't own a scanner um yeah. although actually i say that i've I've got a scanner right behind me, which I've, which I'm probably going to going to sell. It's an A3 scanner, um, but it's. Well, you, uh, you haven't got that to work properly, have you? I've I've now managed to make it work, um, and it's. I, I, I was. It, it's a. It is actually a USB connection, but some of the older ones are SCSI connections, and they can be quite problematic. Mm -hmm. um, so this this I can get it to work now. Uh, the biggest problem was I just simply couldn't get it to work on my main computer, but I managed to uh, get it to work on a laptop without any problems at all at, at all using uh, the ViewScan software. Okay. Um, but it's uh, it's yeah. But as as ever, I'm a bit too tight to pay for that, so <laughs> um, I'd rather use a piece well, you, of uh, plexiglass. You can pick yourself up a. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, you can put. There are a couple of methods on the V. What have I got? V500 or the V550, which some people use. They just scan half the image in a in a cardboard mount that they've made themselves. Turn it, flip it around, and scan the other half, and then yeah. stitch it stitch I mean, it together I'm, somehow. I'm quite I'm quite happy to to um, illuminate it from underneath through a, through some um, perspex or something that's been. Not so much sandblasted, but it's uh, like an opal, so yeah. it, doesn't, it diffuses. Perfect. That's it, a diffuser. Yeah. Um, so that, that's but the, the biggest problem with that is actually trying to find a way of diffusing the light properly. So your light source is going to have an impact on things. You know, if you're using small LEDs in in your light source, will it be powerful mm. enough? And if it's mm. larger LEDs, are they actually going to shine well, through? And you're going to get these like <clears throat> hot spots. Yeah. Did you back? Uh, Hamish's I did pixelator pixelator and uh, I'm I'm pretty excited about that because I'm hope, hopefully by the time this podcast goes goes out yeah, there'll be some some further movement on that because uh, things he's had a he's had more than a few problems getting the the pixelator out it's, and it's it's all to do with the injection molding process that he's going through. Uh, which is yeah. ultimately behind giving him a better product, but actually getting the machine to to produce the the parts in the way that they need to be, in the way that they have to fit in uh, with each other, without them being reversed, and all all sorts of things have been going going wrong. Um, it's been 
very troubling for him. I think that's the best way of putting it. Yeah, I've heard him speak. He speaks about it regularly, doesn't he? And he keeps people yeah. informed. Are you familiar with the pixelator, Alan, what, uh, what we're talking about? <coughs> Excuse me. Is that a way to digitize your uh, negatives with a DSLR? That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's like a little... I mean, it sounds simple, and in theory it is, but I think making a production... It's like anything. Turning a concept into reality suddenly is not so straightforward as as you as you think, and there are all sorts... When you make anything and, and go to market, it's complicated. So this is basically, in the most simple way, a frame that you can mount your 4.5 film. And I think, does it adapt down to 120 as well? or am I Yeah, just, it uses um, like a gate system, so you can yeah. use all, all, all different sizes. I, I think there's a certainly 30, it'll go down to 35 mil. There may be some uh, weird and wonderful sizes in, in between as well. And somehow you either stand that on a light box or against a window and get That's some right. even illumination on it. That's it, but that that is that is a tricky part of the of the whole thing. Getting that the lighting, getting like the illumination, it easy, but it's not. Yeah, no, I can imagine. But that's, no, that's even illumination is very difficult to achieve. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, I, I've I certainly I can do it now, and it's, it's just on doing thirty five mil. It's it's quite quite difficult to do that, and I actually I don't use that system for that. I use a uh, so I, I did actually have a prototype um, pixelator. Um, so that that sort of uh, gave me a few ideas on how how I could do things, um, but I use uh, a set of bellows with a with a sly copier on the end of the bellows with a, with a decent lens uh, to do my thirty five mil. Uh, but for medium format and large format, the the illumination problem becomes harder and harder and harder. Yeah, I mean you can pick up a. I think I think Alan did we just mention the 700 Epson V700 is the first one that takes she, uh, sheet film I think it's a 700 you they then they they're not so expensive now second hand on on the bay they they really aren't I've I've had mine for years now and I bought it new um usually I try to buy this film stuff used but with with a scanner I mean they had to be that lens that scans it has to be in such tight tolerances that I didn't want to risk mm. someone mm. packing it and shipping it used so I just mm. bought it new with yeah. the, everything locked in place yeah I think that I've seen them on over here we, uh, it must be the same for you guys as Facebook marketplace and I saw someone selling one recently but you know and I know after a while scanners can just get a bit quirky I thought well you know has this one been looked after I'm like you if I, I think if I was going to invest in a one for large format i'd probably want to buy a new one but then it starts getting expensive with these 800s or 850s whichever them mm. selling now yeah you're gonna you're gonna see several hundred dollars into those for mm. sure yeah and i don't i don't think i do enough color work for that and i'm quite happy using my enlarger um, and making prints you know i mean uh, four or five enlargers aren't cheap either you know so i suppose you pay your money and take your choice don't you yeah, it's not a cheap hobby either way you look at it. No, and I, but I think that's the way it, folks will say to me, and you must have these conversations. Well, why are you why are you using film? You know, it's uh, surely it's uh, it's much cheaper to shoot away with your digital camera. So, well, if it was all about cost, what we would no one would ever have a hobby, would they? Of any sort, any passion that you have, you do it because you love it, and. 
you know the yeah. the cost i mean the cost comes into it you know i mean as you shared a video didn't you um there was something about getting started in large format how much does it cost what what, what did you decide what was the conclusion yeah. of that <laughs> <laughs> well I, I think we all justify costs for our hobbies in, in different ways um and if if you can justify spending money for if it's going to improve your enjoyment in something, then uh, I think that's and you can justify we, we kind of all write off costs. And you can justify yes, that's that's key as well. Or you just do what yes, Simon does that, and have, have it shipped that expensive toy you've just bought. Have it shipped to another address. <laughs> Go pick it up later. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's not. Uh, I think people see these big cameras and think that it's going to be a lot of money to get into, but it, it's really not. I'm kind of a, an unabashed, intrepid fanboy. Uh, by the way, they don't sponsor or support me or anything. I've bought all my stuff from them. I just I like what they're doing, but they they build a good camera that is not expensive. I don't want to say cheap because I don't think the build quality is cheap. I've beat mine to death and it's still going. Well, the very but latest, the very latest ones we saw, the very latest ones, the Mark Mark threes, I think, aren't they, Simon? We saw those at the photography show, and I was very impressed. So, but that's, you know, that's a uh, he's gone to sleep. Don't worry. Uh, okay, I'll talk through it. I'm boring him to sleep, but uh, <laughs> you know, that's that's what a couple hundred dollars, um, hmm. and then you can find some used lenses. You're gonna be getting into it there you're going to be just getting started you're going to spend less than a mid-range dslr now you're going to have some recurring costs with buying film and stuff but yeah with but large even, format, even fomapan or i think it's probably marketed um in the states or something else so it's uh, you have you know you arista yeah you know you can we can buy uh, 20 sometimes yeah 50 i think 50 sheets for mm, 35 pounds something like that you know so yeah i mean i think uh, delta 100 is like a dollar and a quarter a sheet it's it's not that much your, your color films you're going to pay more for obviously but yeah. it's it's not you can certainly make it an expensive hobby um you're going to get you know, your better cameras are going to have easier movements. Yeah. It's going to be easier to make your movements and stuff and focus and things, but you can make it a really inexpensive hobby and uh, kind of invest later on as you find that it's something you're going to stick with. Or shoot paper negatives. A lot of, lot of folk are making some beautiful images shooting with paper. Yeah. Simon, how are you doing, buddy? Uh, so, sorry for my uh, distracted behaviour earlier. Really. No, uh, that's okay. Uh, we, um, uh, uh, what you should do is, when you're editing this, get some snoring sound effects. <laughs> just put them in there. <laughs> well, that, that that will be practice for me because um, I'm I'm going to be the co-host on the, um, which is a, a negative positive podcast in a in a week or so, which will actually actually happen and go out before this podcast goes out, which is all a bit strange. It's all oh, more, more time traveling, but I'll be sitting in for Andre uh, Dominguez, who uh, regularly falls asleep on his on his own podcast. Well, Neil Piper's already pulled that trick because he 
he went on the show as a guest shortly after the falling yeah. asleep thing. And I said, I said to him before he went on, I messaged him and said, hey, when Gutterman introduces you, you should just go quiet and go. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> I, actually, you, you just reminded me of something there. Um, because um, there's a, there's a, th- Alan did a great video uh, at the start of this year. Um, yeah, and it's called "How to Become a Better Photographer 2019," and mm-hmm. um, and he's got a great tip in there. And this has reminded me of Neil actually, in particular, um, because um, he gives some tips on how to um, well, how to be a better photographer, and more to the point, how to make people think you're a better photographer, which is obviously more important. Um, and uh, and the, I think the first tip in there is uh, make sure you call yourself a master, a master of photography. Yeah, um, because therefore you will be, and that's mm. that's exactly what Neil's done, isn't it? Yeah. So Neil Neil Piper, a good friend, good friend of the show, and very active in our little our little film bubble. Alan, I don't know if you're familiar with Neil. Neil Neil has a little podcast called a little podcast. He has a podcast, <laughs> just a little podcast. <laughs> Let's not be not too on, condescending this week. Not not on the grand scale of ours, of course. Called Soot and Whitewash. Um, so clearly he knows nothing about midtones or subtlety. So it's um, it's all oh, no. it's soot and whitewash. But he is a master of photography. He's um he's a proper I don't know what he is. He's a master. He's done some degree thing, hasn't he? Yeah, he has a he has a certificate to prove yeah. that he's a master. Hmm? Yeah, so I think so many people just in the Instagram culture just randomly started calling themselves master photographers i had to poke a little fun at it we won't dive into this too much but if there's two fun videos to watch this year um and, and they're both in a similar vein it's alan's how to become a better photographer 2019 with his four four tips um we'll, we'll hold we'll hold that last one you will let you get that one in at the end don't worry um, and, and then also Ethan Moses. And are you familiar with Ethan uh, Moses? Alan, Ethan um, is the man behind Camera Dactyl products, butter grips and I'm cameras. Not. And uh, he posted, if you, if you go onto YouTube and type in uh, Ethan Moses uh, uh, Mega Pickles, try that. Not Pixels, Pickles, P-I-C-K-E-L-S. <laughs> I, think it, I think it's the same title. I think it's how to become a better photographer. I think it's very, very uh, similar to that. Yeah, but Ethan, Mo- if you try Ethan Moses' videos, he hasn't got many up there. He's only got three or four. One of them is like how to become a better photographer. Yeah. And, and, and uh, Alan, I'm just going to say, Alan, if, it's, <laughs> if this appeals to you in any way, if you do want a Barbie pink 4x4, four four, uh, sorry, 4x5 four, <laughs> four uh, view camera, Ethan will make it for you. He will, yeah. <laughs> That's customization. It certainly is. It certainly is. He's got it. Um, it was a Kickstarter probably about a couple of years ago now. Um, and mm-hmm. we, had, we had Ethan on the show, and he's uh, and we, we were talking more about his, um, not his very latest thing, because he's, I can't actually pronounce the thing, that he's uh, just... just uh, made with um, with some assistant from uh, Nick on the homemade camera podcast as well. Oh, yeah, I can't pronounce that. Homunculus? Homunculus. Homunculus, something like that. But he's but, done some other, he's done lots of other little cool things. He's now selling little, uh, for the homemade camera builder, little RB67 uh, backs, yeah. adapters and stuff like that, 3D printed. And, yeah. But he, in particular, we were just, we were talking a little bit about the, the OG, uh, which is uh, a four by well, it's just a it's a lightweight 
four by four, four by five camera. Um, that it's it's got a handheld, isn't it? Hand, yeah, well. just a handheld thing, uh, and it's very lightweight. It's it's as close as you get as to a, a compact four by four by five camera you, you can you can imagine. So uh, it, 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 that looks really good fun. Well, one last thing, um, Alan, you are um, mm -hmm. you're clearly a, a proper photographer because you're a member of a collective. Simon's a member of a collective. I think it might be a pinhole collective, or I might just be wrong no, about no, that. We, we did some pinhole stuff, but uh, 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 yeah, I'm most disappointed. I did try and start a collective once and roped a few people in, but we never did anything. We just called ourselves a collective. It sounded it sounded very nice. But you're a member of something called the Dark Slides large format collective which is very specific so uh, you want to perhaps tell us a little bit about who's in that and what's what your aims and objectives are so it's basically just uh an uh i guess an avenue for us to share get the word out about large formats um yeah. share your own work we've got some uh uh blog posts that that each of us try to do on a monthly schedule it's kind of uh, I guess Marty Quinn, Martin Quinn on uh, social media is a very good large format photographer. And uh, kind of he got it together and uh, it, it's been, um, God, I'm going to butcher his name. I know Javort Mufsasian. I do not know how to say his name. We won't have him uh, Myself, show. Alex Burke. Uh, and apologize to him for how I just said his name. Um, <laughs> But myself, yeah. Alex Burke, being Frank Sinatra, uh, Marty, on there, I see. Just, oh no, Frank it's just, uh, yeah, it's just a good, good way to share kind of a, a common landing point for all of our our work to go and things we we think about large format. There's some beautiful work on here, and we'll have to try and get some of these people on if we can pronounce their names and it gives you a place to <laughs> I, Ben Horn and you are, are mercilessly selling your prints on there. I see. Yeah, that's really the only reason I'm a part of it is, is to, to hog my friends. So uh, you've, got no, a pretty, uh, you've got a pretty little box with a bow on it, which is one step up from Ben Horn's, uh, I have to say, rather bland uh, box in comparison to yours. Uh, whenever I purchase his box, uh, I'm just so disappointed that there's no bow on it. It's mean, <laughs> really what sets mine apart. Um so yeah, the box that I have is just images from that trip we went over, uh, and, and I kind of jokingly tell people, I said, "You'll never see images like these again because I don't <laughs> think anybody's crazy enough to to go uh, back you in." Certainly there. wouldn't get Ben Horn down there, would you? Um, he has mentioned it actually going back <laughs> yeah. and doing it at some point. Um, I don't think he will. That's no. No matter how light he gets his pack, that's just going to be a brutal <laughs> hike for him. But Never say never. It may happen. He'll, he'll, he'll need to build himself up a little bit more because he's uh, he was adamant. He, he shared some photographic evidence that he'd actually beaten you in a press up competition. But I think he, I got a suspicion he might have doctored the film uh, a little bit. <laughs> it does look uh, quite doctored. That was that was a lot of fun. We have a little something kind of planned along those lines this year. So I'll, I'll tease that for the Zion videos. And of course, anyone going on your YouTube channel can't help but um, uh, not miss your flying exploits. How, how long have you been flying that little, is it a little Cessna or something? It's a, it seems a little... So, 
Yeah, it is. Not, you don't have a parachute. Test, that's no. all I can see. That's correct. Um, I've been a pilot for nine or ten years and rented airplanes just to fly for forever. And honestly, was kind of getting all my rental planes were, were kind of getting sold off or I, I wasn't having much of an opportunity to fly. So March of last year, actually, I was just prepared to let my pilot's license go. And then opportunity came to buy into this plane that we have now. And it's, it's six seater. So it'll travel with myself and my wife and three kids. And it, it's just been a blast. It, it's, it's not the quickest way to get designed, but to be able to see that, landscape out there from above is, is something i'll never trade it's so just you do, amazing do you actually use it to get travel those 1400 is it 1400 miles you are from zion it's about 1400 nautical miles um so last year was the first year i made that trip and this year uh, i'm going to do it again i'm actually taking two friends uh from home with me as well in the plane so, yes huh? yeah it will uh it, it's got Kind of its claim to fame is it has a large carrying capacity, so it will hold the three of us and all my gear. They're they're not photographers, so they won't be taking quite as much. But it's probably eleven hours of flight time getting out there. Um, with probably make two stops for fuel. Yeah. But it, it's it's a blast flying over the Grand Canyon, seeing that wow. for the first time was wow. one of those things I'll never forget, and just so grateful I got to experience it. Well, I think on that note, I think we should start to bring things to uh, to a close. Um, uh, Alan, it's been great having you on, um, especially listening to that story of uh, <laughs> how you've got through. Um, so much to get through that, that with your friend as well to uh, get through that that slot canyon in one piece. Um, that was uh, that was really interesting <laughs> there. Um, well, yeah, guys, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, no, it's 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 been good, and we didn't do quite a lot of areas as as tends to happen with these things. Where there were lots of places where we we still wanted to go with this conversation. We, um, yeah, we've we've been going on for a while now, so I, I think we've we have to park it there and. It'll be great if you could come back to us again another another time in the future. We can uh, talk a bit more about your projects and the other things that you get up to. Yeah, definitely up for that. Excellent. So, um, uh, as I say, I'm, we're not uh, we haven't got any emails to do this week because we did them two two or three days ago, um, <laughs> and uh, and so on. So, um, uh, how can people keep up with the things that you do, Alan, out, outside of this podcast? Um, so, uh, websites and <laughs> social media and things like that. Yeah, so um, I, I'm not the best at staying, putting out a ton of content on social media, just life with three kids. But um, Instagram, Alan Brock Images, uh, same on Twitter. YouTube is probably where you'll see most of my stuff, um, and it's Alan Brock Images. And I've recently split off all of my flying videos. are going to be on a separate channel, uh, Alan Brock Aviation. So I'm going to kind of keep the photography and the aviation separate. And, um, yeah, that's, that's the best way to find me. Excellent. And uh, do you have any shout-outs that you want to give? Um, definitely. You know, we... we 
talked a lot about uh, about him, and I, I guess you can't really mention me without saying Ben Horn uh, when it comes to photography. But he's, I, I guess, and I don't want to build him up too much, but the the best thing I can say about Ben is he's what you see of him in the videos is just how he is in real life. I mean, he will back when I was first starting, he was giving me tons of advice and just, you know, freely sharing his knowledge. And, uh, I wouldn't, I I don't have a huge YouTube channel, but I wouldn't have near the following that I have, uh, if not for him, you know, mentioning me several times. And then, you know, Justin Lowry as well. Uh, he's kind of not posted as much this year, but he's a great large format photographer and, you know, always thankful that he, he joined me on that trip, uh, a couple of years ago. Excellent. Uh, Andrew, have you got any shout outs this week? Nope. <laughs> we've, we've, we only didn't. It wasn't that long since we last didn't, was it? Um, well, I'm going to have a quick shout out to the um, film developing darkroom club uh, that I'm part of. That uh, if anybody's in the North Staffordshire, South Cheshire area of uh, of the UK, if, uh, if that's something that uh, you fancy having to go at uh, shooting more film and developing it, uh, printing as well. Uh, I'm not very good at printing at the moment, but uh, it's good. It's great fun to learn, even though my my efforts are pretty poor at this moment. So there's a you know it's a, it's a huge learning curve, but it's great fun. Um, so uh, and everybody there is very very supportive. So. Um, if you fancy that, uh, there's lots of ways to get in touch with me, which we'll touch upon very, very shortly. So, uh, Andrew, how can people follow you outside of this podcast? Oh, they can follow me on Twitter, which is my fun place to be, really, at Warboys Snapper. Um, they can follow me and interact with me in the large format photography facebook group which is lots of fun and instagram i'm warboys snapper um yeah so that's we'll just search for my name andrew bartram and i've got a little blog that i put out occasionally um need to do some more stuff with that but other than that it's just twitter and instagram and the facebook page okay uh well i'm on instagram as simon forster photographic on Twitter is Simon4. Um, actually, in the case of and both Andrew and I can also be heard on other podcasts. Uh, mm-hmm. Andrew can be heard on the Lensless podcast every week, and I can be heard on the Classic Lenses podcast every, every week as well. Um, and uh, I've got an eBay store. Uh, what else have I got? I've got a Flickr page which I don't use. Lots of lots of lots of things like that. Um, if you want to see any of the show notes, there's two places for the show notes. Uh, if you go to the um, our Facebook group, which is the Large Format Photography uh, Podcast Facebook group, you can see at the top of the page. You'll see the links to the latest episode. Um, but we're, we're the podcast is hosted on Podbean. So if you do a search for, in fact, actually, if you just Google our podcast, you'll end up at the Podbean page and you can see all our show notes there. Yeah, sometimes I've put them, I've actually cut and pasted them into the Facebook group, but I haven't done that recently. Maybe I ought to try and do that. Yeah, uh, I think probably one of those reasons was, I think I put the, <laughs> I've posted them in there for the couple of weeks, so uh, that'll be, okay. that's probably the reason why. Oh, um, right. 
Um, and what else? What else? Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, we've got an email address, and it's uh, it's a long one, I'm afraid, but it's uh, uh, large format photography podcast at gmail.com. And we also have a YouTube channel, just just like <laughs> Alan. <laughs> yeah, just as exciting as Alan. Yeah. Um, ex- except it's audio only. Um, <laughs> but the the benefit really is that you've got the if. English is not your first language, or you simply can't understand what um, Andrew and I are saying. Um, you can actually you get subtitles, um, which I've I've seen some of these subtitles when it's been done on the Classic Lenses podcast. I'm not actually seeing any large format ones yet, but they they can be quite interesting. Do they get it right? Um, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a bit odd at times. But anyway, um, so. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this show. Um, we'll be back in two weeks, um, and that's just about it. So uh, our music is by Kevin McLeod, uh, and the music is called Two Finger Johnny, uh, which we play now as we speak. Um, so, yeah, I hope you enjoyed the show, and it'll be great if you can come back to us. So uh, goodbye for now. Bye. All right, see you guys. <laughs>